0: Strange times for sure. Sportsnet 960 The Fan is here for you. No sports? No problem. Pinder and Steinberg continues right now on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Let's go back in time and celebrate the amazing history of the Calgary Flames. Today in Flames History, starts starts now.
1: On May 21st, 1980, one of the biggest announcements in Calgary sports history as it was the date of the official announcement, the Atlanta Flames would be relocating to Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Atlanta entered the league in 1971. The team was barely successful on the ice right off the bat, making the playoffs in six of their eight years in Atlanta. Off the ice, however, finances were constantly shaky. And by 1980, ownership had to sell off the team in order to avoid bankruptcy. When no viable offers appeared locally, it was a Calgary-based group of businessmen who emerged as the favorites included the names of Harley Hotchkiss, Ralph T. Scurfield, Norman Green, Doc and Byron Seaman, and former Calgary Stampede legend Normie Kwong. The group would buy the team for $16 million US, the highest ever sale price at the time for an NHL team. While the team decided to keep the namesake of the Flames, the Flaming A was replaced by the iconic Flaming C, now seen daily throughout the city of calgary
0: today in flames history celebrating 40 years of flames hockey in calgary on sportsnet 960 the fan
2: and that is how we are kicking off the show today 40 years ago today may 21st 1980 one of the uh, most if not the most significant day in hockey history in this city i mean maybe uh, maybe if you go back to 1989, a, uh, another day in late May when they raised the Stanley Cup at the Montreal Forum, that would be the only one that might rival it. There's been some really important ones. We've talked about the 4 run a lot, but... For the Calgary Flames to be awarded a franchise and for the announcement to be made that the Flames are moving from Atlanta to Calgary 40 years ago today. Mr. Klein, I would suggest uh, a pretty worthy, uh, a pretty worthy date to spend a little bit more time on
3: today. Yeah, I I would say so. I mean, we talk about 04, we talk about 89, um, and and any other memories that come don't happen if you don't get a team. So it seems like a pretty important one when you actually get the, the Calgary Flames uh, to move from Atlanta to our fine city. I, I would say it's one that probably deserves a couple minutes.
2: I just wanted to make sure that I ran that by you to to make sure that it was okay to spend some time mm-hmm. on today. You have I'm my permission. Yeah. Welcome to the program. It's Pat Steinberg and Peter Klein along with you on Pinder and Steinberg, and we are kicking off the show with the GOAT. We are uh, kicking off the show with the Hall of Famer, and we are kicking off the show with the one and only Peter Marr to celebrate 40 years since the Flames were were awarded to the city of calgary now mr Marr, first of all thank you very much hopefully you are staying safe and well as this strange time continues where were you on may 21st 1980 because you were not in the city of calgary at that point
4: take us back to 40 years ago today my friend well for me uh on this date pat i was in uh, toronto i had just uh finished up my uh season the 79-80 uh, season as the play-by-play broadcaster for the Toronto Maple Leafs, and it was probably about this same date that I found out that the radio station I was working for then wasn't going to rebid for the broadcast rights for the next season. So it kind of all corresponded in, although he didn't know so at the time, uh, it, it corresponded in that uh, there was not going to be a position for me in Toronto to broadcast play-by-play because the rights were going back to a station owned by Foster Hewitt, and Foster had his own people there. Uh, but uh, the Flames coming to uh, Calgary, uh, and eventually I would come to Calgary as well. In fact, uh, two and a half months after, uh, three and a half months actually, after the uh, the team became the Calgary Flames uh, from Atlanta, I would come to Calgary to uh, start a 40-year stint in this uh, city. So certainly a very, very day, a big day today that uh, the Flames were uh, uh, coming to Calgary, it made the city big league. And, um, uh, you know, they didn't have a major league franchise. The CFL had the Stampeders here, of course, for many, many years, and the Calgary Cowboys played in the World Hockey Association uh, for a couple of years. But, you know, those were not considered major leagues in, in the North American scheme of things. So getting the Flames here was a big thing, and it was interesting how it all uh, came about. Uh, the uh, Flames had played in Atlanta for eight years, and... Um, made the playoffs, six of those eight years, but never once won a playoff series. And I remember going in there broadcasting Maple Leaf games. The crowds weren't very big. They had financial problems and eventually decided to uh, sell the team. And a British Columbia businessman, Nelson Scalbania, stepped up with $16 million to uh, buy the team and bring it here to uh, Calgary. And $16 million was a lot of money in those days because it was an NHL record.
0: For yeah.
4: a, uh, getting a franchise and of course now we had vegas come in three years ago paying 500 million dollars <laughs> so that's how it all began on this date and uh, it certainly got to some great things uh, beyond that and probably some great things still ahead for the franchise so pete
2: what was your because at the time when when the team was awarded here you were not a calgarian here's a, a guy from uh, new brunswick who is now done play-by-play with the toronto maple leafs so what was your reaction when this Western Canadian city, Calgary, Alberta, was awarded an NHL franchise? What did you know about Calgary? What did you think about the decision uh, by the NHL moving Atlanta to Calgary? I'm just curious as to your reactions at the time prior to becoming a Calgary icon.
4: Well, certainly I wasn't uh, surprised that the franchise wasn't going to stay in Atlanta for the reasons I gave there a few minutes ago. Uh, I'd never been to uh, Calgary previous to other than stop off at the airport on a flight one time to uh, Lethbridge to go attend the Canadian Winter Games. So that's how my history goes far back to Alberta. Uh, but never spending any time in, in Calgary, so didn't know a whole lot of, all about it at that particular uh, point in time, other than the fact that it was uh, an oil city and was growing fast. It's interesting to note that when the Flames came here, the population of the city was just under half a million people, and now it's over a million people. So it's, uh, it's uh, pretty pretty significant how this city has grown over the, uh, over the years. And interestingly, uh, with regard to uh, Scalbania buying the team, he got most of that money from Molson, uh, as Molson acquired the broadcast rights for radio and television, uh, for the first ten years the team was here, and they uh, and Scalabrine used that money to buy the team. Then, after one year in which he was the uh, owner of the team, as the majority owner, that is, he sold out to his uh, minority owners, who were all Calgarians and great Calgarians is that: Harley Hotchkiss, uh, Doc and B.J. Seaman, and, and Norm Green and Ralph uh, and former C A F L uh, star Normie Kwong. So. Uh, that's, uh, you know, an interesting aspect as well, as Scalvini was not a Calgarian and would only come in here from, from time to time. But then when the other guys came in, taking over full command of the team, it became a whole uh, different uh, situation. But, uh, yeah, it, it certainly was a, a big, big time. And for myself at the time, not really sure how things would go in Calgary, although I had some people that assured me that it was going to be a great sports city and certainly has turned out to be that indeed.
2: So a couple months after the Flames are officially awarded to the city of Calgary, you make your way out and, and you become the first radio play-by-play broadcaster of the Calgary Flames. So tell us about arriving in Calgary, Pete, and, and getting here before the before the NHL had dropped the puck on the first season and, and before the Flames had played their first game in Calgary. What was the buzz like? What was the the feel like uh, as the Flames were getting set for their first NHL season
4: well certainly when you arrived in the city there was an awful lot of buzz about the Flames uh, being a National Hockey League uh, team and uh, all of the excitement uh, certainly had built up from from this date uh, 40 years ago up until uh, when I got here at the start of September just prior to the start of uh, training camp and the, the first thing I remember I stayed at the International Hotel for uh, for about a month or so uh, when I came here and uh, every time you would look out the window of the hotel you would see All of the building cranes that were there downtown, uh, all of these tall uh, tall buildings that we now have here, a lot of those were being built around that particular uh, point in time. And then, uh, you know, you heard all kinds of uh, commentary about the NHL being in Calgary. Uh, The fans were then becoming uh, initiated to the players who were on the team. Cliff Fletcher, of course, who had been in Atlanta, came in as the general manager, and Al McNeil, who was in Atlanta coming in as the the coach and so they, they had some hopes that this might be a pretty good team since it was in the NHL franchise for 8 years prior to coming here but then the first time that I walked in the uh, Stampede Corral which is where the team played for the first 3 years I was stunned <laughs> you know having been in all of the other NHL uh, buildings at uh, that particular point in time walked into the crowd and say my, they're going to play NHL hockey in this building it was such a small building compared to the other buildings around the NHL but it turned out to be a very um, a very um, uh, good spot for the Flames to be playing that first year in, in Calgary. Um, they sold out every game. There were about 72,000 excuse me, 7,200 fans uh, going to the games. And what I remember was the, the seats, if you could get one, cost $25. And if you could get standing room, if you could get one, uh, it was $15. And in those days, those were the highest prices in the NHL for tickets. So it was really, uh, really amazing. Uh, You know, the price for the tickets, and then you go in the building for a a game, and the fans were so close to the ice, it seemed, and the boards were high. And, of course, the Flame team that came in was a big physical team, and they were very intimidating uh, for the opposition uh, with the size of the players and the nature of the building, and that really helped uh, the team have a wonderful first year here, losing only five games during the regular season and winning a couple of playoff series. Uh, beating Chicago and then beating Philadelphia before losing out to the old Minnesota North Stars in the uh, Stanley Cup semifinal in six games. So, uh, you know, it, it came, the city had an awful lot of hype about the team uh, when this announcement was made, and it continued to build as it got to the uh, the opening of the uh, the season. And as that campaign went on, it got even and better and better with the success the team was having
2: it's it's funny you talk about the city at the time and and being a a born and raised calgarian pete i i just love talking to people who have been in this city and and who were in this city as it was growing and as it was turning into a major hub and a major city and and what you said earlier was you know getting the flames kind of turn them into a major league city did you get the feel that that was even the sense at the time among calgarians when you got here that that the NHL is coming and, and finally the city of Calgary is, is maybe a little bit more on the map?
4: Yeah, you certainly got that feeling of, in talking to to people that were, were here at that particular point in time. They felt that that was a big turning point in the city becoming, as you mentioned there, a major league. And it was not long after that that uh, they had the successful bid to have the uh, Winter Olympics come here to Calgary in, in 1988. And, of course, uh, they eventually would uh, get themselves the brand-new Saddle Dome where the team has played – Uh, ever since uh, the fourth season here in Calgary. So, yeah, there's no question that uh, having the flames come to Calgary was a highly significant elevator in the stature of the city of Calgary, which was continuing to grow at that particular point in time, which you mentioned earlier, with all of these buildings coming up and all of the oil companies that uh, were having offices here and uh, all of that sort of thing that was going on. And just to add it to all of that excitement, having a National Hockey League team uh, come here. And, you know, interestingly, in that first season, you you had Kent Nielsen get 131 points, and that still stands as a record for most points in a single season by a a flame player. He was absolutely phenomenal, the shows he'd put on in the uh, Saddle Dome. And the last year that they played in the Corral, the 82-83 season, was the year that Landon McDonald set a record. Uh, that still stands with his uh, 66 goals. So there was a lot of uh, important notations for this team in the early years that they were here in Calgary before building into eventually would be a Stanley Cup, the contender and a Stanley Cup champion.
2: Would have absolutely loved to watch hockey at the Stampede Corral and watch NHL hockey at the Stampede Corral. Must have been incredible. And I know that's where Mr. Klein wants to go with you. We're in conversation with the Hall of Fame voice of the Calgary Flames, Peter Marr. Today marks the 40-year anniversary that the Flames moved from Atlanta to Calgary. May twenty-first, 1980 was the date, and 40 years today is what we're celebrating. Mr. Klein.
3: Uh, we, we've talked about playing NHL hockey in the Corral. Well, what about broadcasting NHL hockey from the Corral? Well, what was it like doing your job from that rink on a day-to-day basis?
4: Well, Peter, it was, uh, it was easier than a number of the other buildings in, in the NHL because you were so close to the ice. You had no trouble <laughs> um, you know, determining the numbers of the players from a, from a play-by-play standpoint and, and following the play. In, in some respects, you're almost too close to the ice. Um, you know, to get a, a good overview, but nonetheless, I, I enjoyed those uh, years broadcasting the games uh, from the, uh, the from the corral. There. there was some rumor that somebody uh, earlier on, before the Flames came here, was broadcasting a game in the building and almost fell out of that uh, broadcast location that they had there. So that became a little bit. Uh, something you had to be a little bit worried about because you were really close to the ice. There was no real ledge that you were sitting at or standing at when you were broadcasting the games. But the atmosphere in the building was absolutely uh, tremendous, as you might expect. Uh, An NHL team a new one in the city the place filled with uh, 7200 uh, people and all of them in in a great great mood to uh, cheer on the team and that building in itself uh, created a lot of noise uh, that you didn't hear in uh, you know in some of the other buildings around the NHL even though they might have had more than double the size of the the crowd so It was just wonderful uh, broadcasting hockey games in in that building. And as I say, um, you know, you you go as the newer buildings came about, you got further and further away from the ice surface. But in the corral, you almost felt as though you were right on the ice or practically on it or just above the glass uh, when you were calling play-by-play in there.
3: Now, with those early teams, you mentioned Kent Nielsen before, and just going back and looking at at some of the numbers, it's mind-boggling to see the stats he was putting up. Who were some of the other players who uh, became fan-favorites in some of those early years here in Calgary?
4: Well, Kent, as you mentioned, was a real big uh, fan-favorite in the the early uh, going here. He was such a The magic man, as they called him, and he had that wonderful first year and continued to go on to have another four or five great years with the team before eventually being traded. So he was really the first superstar that the Flames had here in their time. And, uh, you know, they also had Guy Schwinnard, who was here. Uh, Guy was an outstanding centerman. He was the guy who was the centerman most of the time uh, the year that Lanny scored his 66 goals. And uh, he also had guys like uh, Big Willie Platt, and uh, Eric Vale, these were guys that came over, all of them came over from Atlanta and really made a big impact uh, on the team in the, in the early going in the time here in Calgary, as well as Paul Reinhardt, who was a, a defenseman, who was a, a rookie, when the team uh, came here, and he was a guy that put up a lot of, uh, a lot of big high-scoring numbers uh, on defense, along with Pekka Raticalio was another defenseman from Finland that was a high-scoring uh, defenseman. So those guys really uh, stood out in the early days with the team. They had Dan Bouchard in goal for a while. Then uh, he got traded. Pat Riggin was also here uh, the first year and uh, first couple of years as the uh, one of the goaltenders with the team. But eventually Reggie Lemelin would take over as the uh, number one goaltender uh, for the team, and he had that position until... Uh, Mike Vernon came along in 1986 uh, to take over that number one position, and of course uh, was a key uh, clog in the team going to the Stanley Cup final in both 1986 and again in 1989. But those were the you know the early uh, players that um, you know kind of stood out that come to mind uh, quickly uh, from that uh, from that Flames uh, hockey team. Dan Quinn was another one that uh, that stood out in the early years, and of course Jim Poplinski, who is still here in Calgary, still uh, works with the uh, Flames. Uh, surprisingly, he was the first flame country flame player uh, to have a four-goal game. And uh, he did that in the 81-82 uh, season. So, uh, Jim once had a 31-goal season, although he was uh, better known as being more of a defensive forward, a guy that could play the tough role and needed. but he also had a good knack of uh, putting the puck in the net. So, he was a guy that gained some popularity in the early going of this team as well, along with Brad Marsh, a defenseman who was more of a defensive-minded defenseman who was captain of the team, uh, Bob Murdoch, Another guy that uh, played briefly here on the team defense before uh, becoming an assistant coach, uh, coming into that position uh, when Bob Johnson came in as head coach of the team in the team's uh, third year in the city.
3: Now you mentioned that uh, the team in Atlanta had a lot of success, but maybe not so much at the the box office. I would imagine those players were pretty pumped to have the corral filled up every night. what was their reaction? The the players' reaction coming from Atlanta to here in Calgary?
4: Well, a lot of them, you know, were kind of uh, you know they didn't know what to expect. You know they had uh, a, a lot of guys that had spent a number of years with the team in Atlanta, and uh, and um, they got used to having you know very small crowds in the building. And all of a sudden they come in the uh, corral, and maybe the seven thousand people they had in the corral is the same number they would have had in the Omni in Atlanta where the uh, where the Flames played before coming here. But uh, it looked like a much much bigger crowd with the uh, with the enthusiasm and, the, and all the seats being filled in the building. One of the first things that the players talked about was when they came out of the dressing room to go onto the ice. They had to pass through the uh, crowd, who were uh, uh, who were all in the the corridor. Where the concession stands were and all that type of thing, they made special a special dressing room for the uh, Flames, but it was in the area in behind where the uh, concession stands and and the uh, the lobby were. So the players would go on the ice; they'd be right in there intermixing with the uh, with the fans, and they found that was very, very, uh, very, very different and very, very strange. But in the end, they come to uh, enjoy that. And uh, you know, there were some nights they'd get some criticism if they weren't having a good game. The <laughs> odd fan would step up and make a comment or two. But most of the time, they got uh, got pats on the back as they were coming out on the ice or coming off the ice after uh, completing a game or a period or or whatever. So uh, you know, they were you know they were they didn't quite know what to expect in in Calgary. A lot of those players that came here, and of course, uh, you know, after about the, the third season, it was that time that Cliff Fletcher. A uh, second or third season. Second and third season. Cliff Fletcher made a number of trades, trading a number of the uh, the long-time flames from the days in Atlanta. Guys like um, like Winard and Eric Vale and uh, Willie Platt. Guys that were all traded for for draft picks and that type of thing and younger players and eventually they would build up to the team that they had in the uh, you know from the mid 80s through to the the, the mid 90s that uh, was always a contending team in, in the NHL and became a whole different uh, type of hockey team uh, after that transition uh, took place and um, and um, you know it was some great maneuvering that was done by the management of the team at that point in time to uh, transform it from being a team. After that first year, which had uh, a number of uh, successes that we talked about earlier, the second year wasn't so good. The team uh, made the playoffs, but it got eliminated real quickly. And uh, that's when it kind of started to the the turnaround of uh, the personnel that were playing on the team.
2: He is Peter Marr, the Hall of Fame voice of the Calgary Flames, joining us on the program today. It's the 40-year anniversary of the Flames officially moving from Atlanta to Calgary, and uh, Pete reminiscing uh, about the early years of the team in that first season. And, and you know, it's funny, I, Pete, the, the work that you're doing on the Flames alumni Twitter account coming up with the, the Red Hot History, this date in Flames history stuff, I, I, I think has been outstanding. And there was a picture on there uh, going back to this date in the 1st, playoff home game at the corral where it shows exactly what you're talking about the players walking through the crowd and there must have been there must have been 700 people there just while like right on top of the players they were going out to the ice it was uh it was an incredible visual just to see a the 80s hairstyles b the 80s clothing styles but then to see all these humans on on top of nhlers who are going out to the ice like you don't you don't see that anymore
4: no, you don't. And most of them had a, had a glass of beer in their hand as well, those fans, because they yeah. didn't the concession stand. So they, uh, uh, the players would get a whiff of that as they were uh, walking out on <laughs> the edge to start a game or start a period. So, yeah, it was very, very unique, that uh, type of uh, situation that was there in the Corral. And those that have been in the Corral, it's the same way there today in that building. If they were to have, uh, have an event there, if you were a player, you'd have to go through the crowd before you... Uh, got yourself uh, on the ice so it was a really really unique in in that particular way and the, the team uh had put trailers up adjacent to the um to the uh, corral where uh, the offices were for for team management people such as uh, the gm cliff fletcher and and other people that were involved in the, the management operation of the team so that was all different uh, from uh, from other national hockey league uh, teams So a whole bunch of real different things that uh, took place in those early years with the uh, with the team and uh you know, having that, uh, the start of their NHL history. Uh, the very first game that was played there was on, on October the ninth, uh, the when the Quebec Nordiques came in, and that was the first time the Stashneys would play in the uh, in the NHL. And I still got the game certificate and game sheet from that uh, particular game that ended up in a in a five-five uh, tie in that game in the uh, in the corral. And uh, Michel Doulet, who would later become a um, member of the Flames scouting staff. Uh, played for the Nordiques, and he scored the first ever goal, NHL goal, in the uh, corral, uh, doing that you know, against Dan uh, Bouchard, and the first uh, guy to score a goal for the Flames in there. He scored 35 seconds after Goulet opened the scoring. That was Renard scoring the uh, the first goal, and Kent Nilsson on that opening night uh, gave fans a, um, a um, you know a to- a tonic of what was to uh, be. Something that would be a standard for uh, his time here in Calgary is he has the big. He was the top point getter on that night, uh, scoring two goals and getting uh, two assists in that very first game that was played uh, in the uh, Corral on October the ninth of nineteen eighty, which four and a half months after. Uh, this date, uh, 40 years ago, and there was a lot of work that had to be done behind the scenes uh, and in front of the scenes to get this team ready uh, to play its first uh, NHL game uh, over a short turnaround from one city to another, and then uh, you know getting ticket sales done, season tickets and all that sort of thing. So an awful lot of work had to be done uh, before they got to that very uh, first regular season NHL game in Calgary. Final thought for you,
2: Pete, and and that is something that I think you can speak uh, very well to, and and that is just the the legacy that this team has built in this city now over 40 years. The work that the foundation has done in the Calgary community and the work that the foundation has done in Southern Alberta, the work that this incredible alumni group, which you are so well connected to, I mean, it's... it's it's incredible the amount of work and, and the amount of behind the scenes and, and stuff that we, we don't hear about and probably should hear more about that both the foundation and the alumni do. Pete, just um, to close it out, can you just give a thought on the lasting legacy outside of the on-ice stuff that the Calgary Flames have made in this city over 40 years?
4: Uh, it's, you know, we talk about as you mentioned there all of the uh, things that happened on the ice with this flame team over the over the 40 years. But uh, a lot of times, what goes unnoticed is how much the uh, team has given back. To the community financially i mean millions and millions of dollars have gone to uh, worthwhile organizations in calgary and and surrounding area that have been donated by the uh, flames foundation and this all goes back to that ownership group from calgary that i talked about earlier that was their commitment uh, they wanted an nhl team in calgary and it wasn't so much about uh, making a lot of money with the team back in in those days but it was having the nhl team here and then contributing back into the community on a financial basis i mean for a number of years Uh, The Flames' ownership was making a whole bunch of uh, donations uh, to various groups in the city, but they didn't want any publicity for any of that, so most of that didn't even get noticed. It was not until much later on in in time that uh, it became, uh, became public that uh, how much contribution the Flames is making uh, to the overall goodness of, of our great city with their uh, financial contributions, and they continue to do that uh, to this very, very day. Even though the NHL is in a pause right now, you hear about uh, various uh, various groups at the Flames uh, Foundation for Life are making contributions, to here during this uh, COVID-19 uh, time as well as uh, others, so that is something that uh, that uh, has a, a huge huge impact in the city, although you don 't hear as much about it as probably we should hear about that we you know the The, the popular thing is the, the team on the ice and uh, that kind of activity, but a lot of things go on behind the scenes that they should be congratulated for and doing great great things for our uh, our community and certainly it 'll be great uh, when they can get uh, you know get hockey back for this season and eventually get into a new building here in, uh, in Calgary, and uh, that will allow the, uh, the cities to watch the team in another uh, building that will have some uniqueness to it, I'm certain, by that particular point in time, which I guess the aim now is for, for 2024. But all of it leads into uh, the team giving back to the community. Pete,
2: you are the best. Uh, that was awesome. Thank you so much for spending a couple of minutes with us this afternoon. A pretty uh, significant day for hockey in this city, and thanks for helping us tell the flame story, because I don't know if there's a better person to do it on the planet. Thank you, Pete.
4: Be well. Be Bye-bye, safe. Peter, Good. Uh, keep safe, folks, and uh, hopefully things will get back to normal soon.
2: Absolutely. Thank you, Pete. All right, gang. That's Peter Marr, the Hall of Fame voice of the Calgary Flames, joining us on the program today. Uh, second time that we've had the opportunity to chat with Pete uh, during the pandemic. He joins us on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline, working hard to reopen soon for sit-down drinks and dining. Atlas Pizza is still open for pickup or delivery by calling 403-248-3344. That's 248-3344. Tough not to uh, feel good about the first segment when you get 25 minutes with the Hall of Famer, yeah. Peter Marr we'll take a break it's pat steinberg and peter klein we got chris johnston our nhl insider up around the corner the latest on an nhl restart plan so that was 40 years ago now let's uh, fast forward to today how much closer are we to the nhl coming back we're on sportsnet 960 the fans sportsnet.ca slash 960 online you can get us on the radio player canada app of course on your smart speaker at home and stop in stop on in on instagram live kleiner and i are up on ig live if you want to come look at our ugly mugs for uh, for the show as well entire show every day on ig live at steinberg 1984 come toss a follow and uh, watch along while you listen as well chris johnston our nhl insider next it's pinder and steinberg on sportsnet 960 the fan
0: two guys in different spots staying at home but still talking on the radio it's a miracle pinder and steinberg is only on sportsnet 960 the fan
2: it's time to say hello to our nhl insider chris johnston from sportsnet and sportsnet.ca he joins us tuesdays and thursdays here on pinder and steinberg and cj when we spoke to you 48 hours ago you said yeah it's uh, we're kind of back on the roller coaster when it comes to the nhl and their restart plans and uh looks like that roller coaster is back on the high side again uh, you and elliot friedman doing some incredible work breaking the story last night about where the nhl is right now so can you give us an update on where the nhl roller coaster
5: sits right now well i think the best way to put it is that progress has been made on on the format uh, the league would like to to come back under if it's able to on the other side of this pandemic and and so you know there, there's still uh, a technical aspect here it's not finalized it's not totally signed off on you know at this point the league's waiting to to hear uh, back from the Players Association, which has an executive board call in a couple hours' time uh, from when we're talking right now. But, you know, I think the fact that the return to play committee feels as though it has something worth sharing with that board is, is notable. And, and you know, remember that that return to play committee has both uh, members of, of the league executive and, and five current players and, and PA staff. And so both sides in, in these talks are represented on that committee. And so I think that that tells us at least that, that they're on to something here and that you know, it looks as though you know there still could be some tweaking and some changes, but um, you know this this 2014 playoff format, we're starting to see what it's going to look like.
2: So, what are the immediate next steps, and and what is immediately in front of the PA and the league in in terms of continuing to put this into motion?
5: Well, I think we'll get some clarity tonight. I mean, in theory, the, the NHL PA's executive board could have a vote on it tonight, and and essentially approve this and say they're okay with, with what's on the table. They could suggest some tweaks. They could ask for a little bit more time. You know, this executive board's made up of, of a representative from each of the 31 teams. You know, maybe those those players want to go back and, and canvas a little bit more some of their own teammates before, you know, having a vote. You know, I think that there's a few possible outcomes here. But what's clear, I'd say, in the big picture is, you know, I think that there's a mutual – uh hope to to finalize this one way or another to 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 you know spell out exactly what the return to play format will look like to give players that you know know they're going to be coming back a, a tangible idea of what they're coming back to and you know to think about the the playoff opponents they're going to have and and you know start you know give them that kind of carrot I guess and and then obviously there's the seven teams uh, that would officially know that they're they're not going to play anymore the the, the bottom seven you know, that kind of releases those players from any concerns or having to ride the roller coaster uh, the rest of us have been on. And so I think that, you know, here in in the next few days, uh, you know, I'm a little hesitant to put a, a timeline on it because it's hard to know what the, the players are, are going to say tonight on this call. But, um, you know, there, there is a, a desire to try to finalize this thing one way or another. So what are
2: the details? Like, give us the, the skinny on kind of what you and Elliot have have zeroed in on and what this format is going to look like for those who have not seen the report on sportsnet.ca or who have not seen either of you guys on twitter what can you tell us about the format and what it looks like right now
5: well we're going back to a conference-based playoff format as opposed to divisions and so you're going to have 12 teams for each side return uh the, the top four teams in each conference uh, essentially are given a buy into what we would consider the, the first round uh, those teams actually will play three games amongst each other. Uh, you know, the top four will each play the other uh, teams, and you know the results of those games will actually help determine the exact seeding one through four. And while that's happening, uh, the bottom eight on each side will will play play-in series. Those will be best of five, and they will determine seeds five, six, seven, and eight. Uh, you know who who will play the top four seeds, and so. I think a couple of things that, that stand out to me in this is that it, it's bracketed, which means it's not reset every time. So the seeds aren't as important. I mean, there's a, a scenario, you know, tough to sort of articulate on radio, but uh, where the number one seed might not actually play the lowest seed. Uh, because if Montreal, say in the East or Chicago in the West is a 12th seed, if they were Chicago's to upset Edmonton in the first round, they would actually play the number four seed, even though they'd be the, the bottom team, just the way it, the bracket works. It's almost, like the similar to the NCAA basketball tournament. And, and so, um, you know, I think the seating maybe is a little bit less important, but, you know, what this does is it gives us a clear idea of who's playing whom. Uh, you got those best of five play ins for the bottom teams, and then, you know, that basically gives us the, the traditional 16 that we're used to, and then it would be four best of seven se- uh, series to determine the Stanley Cup winners. So, you know, I, I know that, that there's some critics of this that they, they don't think, especially teams like Montreal and Chicago, belong. But to me, it's still going to take 16 playoff wins at minimum to win the cup. And, yeah. and then, obviously, if you're one of the teams that's coming from the bottom half of the bracket, which we've seen this happen in hockey a, a lot, I mean, those teams have to win a three out of five in addition to the the 16 wins. So they they essentially need to win five series and 19 games. So, you know, I I I think at the end of it, if they're able to play this, I, I you know, I can't imagine there might be some small quibbles about you know certain breaks teams got, but I, I can't imagine we're we're going to say the best team in that tournament didn't win because that, that's a pretty big gauntlet to have to climb. I'm with you
2: 100% on that one. I, I don't understand the uh, some of the, the naysayers and the critics that are out there on it. But in, in saying that, and, and this some is not a Some people just need
5: leading... to complain online. That That's what I've – I this know. has been my t- determination is that some people need anything to complain about the
2: amount of times and and this is just a this is just a, a quick soapbox second and, and i'd be curious yeah. to get your uh your response to it but the amount of times i've seen whether it's it's on in my mentions if i put out a tweet that that something is said or reading i reading yours or Elliot's or pierre's or bob's mentions like the yeah. amount of people who just like uh, cancel the season this is stupid why are we i, I don't understand i don't i don't understand the it, it makes no sense to me why there would be a sentiment saying just cancel the season and don't bring it back. That does not compute with me, and it it, it drives me bonkers that there is that, that continue. And I'm not saying that's everybody. It's probably a very small segment of the population, but it, 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 it baffles my mind that, that there, there seems to be like this, no, this is stupid, don't play it. I, 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 don't, I can't wrap my head
5: around that line of thinking. I really can't. There's a surprising amount of it, and you're right. Twitter's a dangerous place because it's a bit of an echo chamber. There's only certain people in that that thing, and so sometimes it seems bigger than it is. But I'm surprised, you know, like say if you have a little piece of news on this or something, a tweet that does some business. I mean, there's a lot of people usually saying that, and I, I don't quite get it. I mean, first of all, you know, those of us making those tweets, we're just doing our job. We're not the one initiating the discussions or yeah. making these plans. We're just trying to tell people what's going on with them. And, and secondly, you know, I don't think anything's going to compel you to watch. You know, you no one's making you – care you know bundesliga played games on the weekend i'm sure a lot of people didn't watch those games but people that like that sport you know what they probably enjoyed it and, and my guess quite honestly even if these games end up being played in august and the summer is great and then we're all canadian we like to get outdoors i still think if this tournament is held that there'll be a tremendous amount of interest because it'll be different it'll be a long time coming and and i still think it's going to be kind of cool i'm, I'm really hoping now that we're seeing what it looks like that we actually get to see it play in reality
2: and and in saying that, Soapbox has now been put away. Um, why why has the NHL, like what what about this particular format has been uh, so uh, interesting and why does the NHL and the Return to Play Committee feel like this is the best way
5: to restart the season? Well, I think it does a few things. It, it includes absolutely every team that had any chance of winning the Stanley Cup when the season was stopped. I mean, there, there's not really... A fair complaint, at least not one I would be willing to listen to, for many of the seven teams that don't get to participate, that they, they should be there. You know, in doing so, you have five of the six, original six teams included. And, and you know, the Rangers, the Canadians, and the Blackhawks, all three of those teams wouldn't be in if, if you went to a 20-team format. So you, you've you engaged some some big markets, some traditional markets, big cities. And, you know, selfishly, we've got six Canadian teams in it. We'd have a Jets uh, flames play in, which which I think is kind of cool. An all Canadian matchup It's something that, that works. And and you know, I think ultimately what they've decided is that it preserves the integrity of the competition, uh, which you was know, one of the things right from the first day of the pause that, that Gary Bettman started hammering on and I don't think he's ever relented. I mean, just as we were talking about earlier, it's gonna be it's hard to say that any team that comes through this didn't deserve uh to win something, that you know, that this is this is a, a worthy competition. And I think that they've managed to come up with something that's about as good as you can do. And, you know, I, the, the fair question, I think all along has been the hard one, you know, for example, you know, the, those 12 versus five seeds. you have Montreal and, and Pittsburgh in the East, and, and you have uh, Chicago and Edmonton in the West, you know, there, there's a big gap between those teams, you know, Montreal and Chicago were both going to have to win their last 10 or 12 games or whatever they had left, even have any hope to get in the playoffs. They were very, very, very unlikely to get there. And, and so you know now those two teams find themselves in a best of five where they could knock off a team that that had a pretty good year, and some people don't think that's fair, and I think part of what the return to play committee did is they they explored ways to see is there a way that we could make it harder for those teams to win like like should edmonton and and Pittsburgh end up say have a one nothing lead to start that series, so they only have to win two, the other team has to win three, or should they have to be swept in order to lose it and and they kind of went through that exercise, and I think ultimately what was decided is that's that's way too gimmicky, even at a, a time when we're being a little bit gimmicky, mm-hmm. you know, a best of five, look at the play the, the regular season guarantees you nothing. I mean, we could go to every single year and point that out, but nothing hammers at home better than Tampa Bay's historically great regular season last year and the four game playoff loss. They were the first team eliminated uh, after having the, the best regular season, almost in NHL history. So, you know, that, that, I think we have to sort of just, put to rest in our minds what's happened already is the regular season it's over and now uh, things are in the hands of fate it's a game played with rubber on ice Uh, teams get hot momentum injuries all this stuff factors into who wins every year and and i just think that that as they've gone through it this is the best way to engage the most markets um you know try to to put themselves in a position to earn back some revenue and get fans excited about something that's a little bit different than what we're used to but still honors you know what the, the competition's supposed to be
2: he is Chris Johnston. Our NHL insider joins us Tuesdays and Thursdays on the program. Mr. Klein. Uh, the, that top four
3: tournament in, in each conference, is that going to be like one versus four, two versus three, or how are they going to, to work that tournament?
5: So what I know for sure is the least play around Robin type of game against all the other teams. So everyone will play everyone. And what I think is still being decided or debated is, you know, let's say if you're the fourth seed, Dallas is the fourth seed by point percentage in the West entering that. I, I don't think even if Dallas goes 3-0, they can get to the one seed. But I'm not sure exactly the mechanics that are going to be put in for how high you can jump or how those, those things are weighted. But what I do know is that those games will allow for some juggling of the seeds. So Dallas enters as the fourth of those four teams. Well, if they do go 3-0, they're going to end up somewhere above fourth. And so I think that that part of that is still what's being, at least on the player side, debated about how that should look or how it should work. Uh, I think they've had a few different models on it. Um, but, you know, essentially what they're trying to do is not have those games be completely meaningless. I mean, I think that there would be fair concern if you're a team that had a great regular season and those were only three exhibition games today. I mean, pure exhibition. And the team you're about to face, even if it is a lower seed, has just come through and won a best three out of five and played something much closer to, to what playoff conditions are. Um, you know, I think that, that you you naturally feel a little bit nervous about that, that you're just not maybe at the same speed as, as the team you're, you're facing. I mean, I think that actually was a factor in the Tampa Bay Columbus series last year is Tampa clinched the playoff spot by about Christmas time. And they clinched the president's trophy by the trade deadline and down the the, the stretch of the season, what a few of their players said and like re- looking back is that they just relaxed too much. I mean, maybe that's, I can't speak for the flames you guys around them more. Maybe that was a factor in their great season last year that didn't produce much when it came to the playoffs. And so, you know, I I think that they're trying to find a way they've tried to find a way to keep those top teams, to give them an advantage, to reward the season they've had, uh, but also to, um, you know, give them a chance to to get competitively sharp because, you know, they're going to be jumping in against a team that's already won a series and you know, there'll, there'll be momentum building and those, those types of things. So, I don't know exactly the machinations, but but the simple answer is that each of those top four will play three games against the other teams and and that the outcomes of those games will help determine what the the final seeding is.
3: Now, looking at the format, it does look like, if we want to limit as much contact as possible, that having the east in one location and the west in another would probably be the, the easiest way of going about things. Are we at a point now where two hub cities is maybe a bit more realistic than the four that had been discussed before?
5: Yeah, I would say four is not totally dead, but it's pretty close to dead. You know, it seems as though all the momentum here is going to two. And and look, it even makes sense when you're having a conference-based competition. I think to have the whole conference in one spot, it it also comes with you know an advantage that no one has to travel until after the second round. I mean, technically, you could actually play right through the conference final in the two cities. Although I think the preference of the league is to to play you know using two hubs. Uh, play it through the second round and then get both the Eastern final and the Western final in the same city and have everyone there through the the conclusion of the Stanley cup final. Um, But, you know, it does seem as though the the two city format is, is preferred. You know, I I think I've, I've talked to you guys a bit, you know, I'm a little bit still skeptical about a Canadian city being one of those two, but you know, that hasn't been ruled out And and the league's position on this at this point in time is, you know, they're not going to declare what the hub cities are until they absolutely have to. I, I think that, You know, we'll have this format 100%, you know, known and in public and announced. Uh, You might even get the dates announced. You know, that's not going to come initially, but at some point that it'll be the dates. And then I think the hub cities will be something in the future because, you know, well, you know, I'm pretty comfortable telling you guys I think Vegas is is by far the front runner to be one of those cities. I mean, maybe something happens there from the health situation, from the governments, from, you know, something could, you know, crop up between now and and two months from now that, that has to change the leaks plan. So, they're trying to leave the door open as much as they can, but I would say at this point in time, everything is pointing to a two-hub uh, kind of scenario.
3: Now, with the seven teams not making it, do they just go into the draft lottery, or would some of the teams that get eliminated in the play-in tournaments also be included in that?
5: That's still to be decided. You know, I'm not sure where that's going to land. I would think each of those seven teams that, that, that won't be included will at least have a shot at the number one pick. Uh, you know, that that only makes sense, and that's kind of, you know, the way it works in in a normal year. The the 15 teams that don't make the playoffs, you know, granted the, you know, the the best one has very very low odds, but there's there's a chance to to win the number one pick in 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 exchange for not playing playoff games. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen though to teams that are beat out in the play-in. I mean, what happens if say Pittsburgh, who actually had a pretty good year, does get upset by Montreal? I mean, would they be in the lottery all of a sudden? You know, a team that was was certainly in the top ten overall in, in the league, I, I don't know if that'll that'll be what happens. I don't actually think the NHL has decided that even privately. I mean, it seems to me that they, they've kind of shelved the draft and the draft lottery talk uh, Well, they've, they've ramped up to focus on getting the playoff uh, format locked in. I think once that format's locked in, uh, you know, the, the, the next logical thing is to figure out the draft lottery and, and when it's going to be held and, and when the draft's going to be held and how all those things work um but you know I, I think earlier when we talked about the draft they were trying to race it through they've since decided okay let's do things in a natural order and the natural order right now is first you know fully locking in the playoffs because i suppose there's a, there's a chance that this whole thing blows up and something different comes across i mean it, given how much things have changed already I, I can't rule that it was a possibility so you know th- there's no point in, in saying it's going to be seven teams that have a chance to win the number one overall pick if maybe that somehow a 20-team tournament comes up out of the blue that isn't being discussed now, and it's going to be 11 teams that have a shot at that. So you know, I don't think the draft lottery will be locked in fully until this, this playoff format signed off on.
3: Uh, with any time there are changes with anything, especially right now, people are going to suggest that maybe this will be a long-term solution. Uh, do you think that the, this format that we're seeing right now could be something that is used when things do get back to normal eventually?
5: I don't know if they'll go 24 teams, you know, that that's a lot, 24 out of 32, even if it is just a, a best of five play in, but I have to think at some point in the future, we're going to see more than 16. And I mean, the near future, um, you know, be be the, the qualifiers for the league. And, and I think this could offer a way forward, you know, what I've been sort of interested in, and, and it's somewhat of a, sem- a semantics argument, but you know, this has gone from being called, you know, a 20, an expanded 2014 playoff to, you know, that play in round and, and, and the games played with the top four seeds, that, that's sort of considered separate. And, and I think the playoffs will officially start when you're back down to 16, which is what we're, nor- we're, we're used to, which, you know, to me tells me, I think the NHL doesn't want anyone to read into this, that, that the, the playoff format itself is being completely rejigged, but you know, there, there's a lot of conversations that are going to happen well beyond this year, the NHLPA just on ex- extending the CBA uh, talking about the playoffs. and I, And I think it makes too much sense, especially for the league going to 32 teams in a year's time when we add Seattle, uh, not to have more playoff games, just because they, they generate revenue, which is going to continue to be something I think that there's a focus on, you know, even beyond you know what happens here in 2019-20 uh, to, to get back to to where they were in the past in terms of you know yearly revenue and and to exceed that, and and one obvious way to start to do that I think is to expand the field of playoff teams. So you know, if I'm, if I'm a betting man, I think we're going to see at least say a 20 team type of format where the bottom four in each conference uh, are playing some kind of wild card play in, in, in the near future, you know, beyond this year. Uh, but, you know, at this point in time, that's, that's just my conjecture as opposed to anything official.
3: Chatting with our NHL insider, Chris Johnston here on Pinder and Steinberg. He's Steinberg.
2: Just a couple more for you, CJ. Number one, um, and this is just a just a for technical clarification. I mean, obviously, the season will be starting after contracts traditionally expire. What what is in place to make sure players can still play after July first, knowing that traditionally that's when, especially if you're on an expiring deal, that comes to an end.
5: Well, as of now, absolutely nothing's in place, which is why you know I think it's important for them to lock in this playoff format because then they'll move on to all those issues and and. Okay. You know, some of those issues are probably even more important than a playoff format. I mean, I find a playoff format interesting where we're talking about, you know, which teams are going to play which teams and what it looks like. But the reality is, you know, if this is going to happen, you know, they have to iron out how the, the testing protocol is going to work. They have to iron out, you know, what's going to happen with work visas for players because, you know, players uh, have contracts that expire on, on June 30th officially. You know, so most players, that that's when their work visa expires. So that's got to be dealt with. And then ultimately how these, these contracts are going to function, insurance. You know, I think that there's, there's all kinds of sort of less sexy issues, uh, for, for lack of a better term, uh, that still need to be, to be hammered out. And right now the status of those, you know, the, the July 1st group is, is un, undefined. And, and, you know, let's face it, at this point for sure, the, the, the playoffs, if they happen, they're not starting before July 1st. I mean, we're looking at starting July 20th, probably a best case scenario right in, in and around there. I don't mean that as a specific date, but I mean, we're talking the latter part of July at the earliest. And so if you're Alex Petrangelo or one of the, what, 150 players that doesn't have a contract for next season, um, you know, I think you're going to want to know how that works and how you're protected. And I mean, if he doesn't, you know, for example, Petrangelo's case, I mean, obviously he's going to probably sign maybe the biggest free agent deal whenever this off comes and but he's potentially going to be playing games for the st louis blues on you know in late july and if he suffers a career-ending injury or something and, and obviously no one hopes that happens i think he's going to want some assurances that he's he's protected in that case and and so you know, i think that there's a lot that still has to kind of be finalized when it comes to that stuff and 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 you know the pressure points are coming i mean the first sort of critical off-season dates arrive june 1st typically that's when you have to sign your draft picks that are eligible to go back into the draft if you don't sign them. You know the buyout window typically opens July 15th, or sorry, June 15th, the first buyout window. You know there's a whole bunch of other sort of dates that are typically you know considered part of the critical calendar in the off season that that are starting now, and that whole package is going to have to be moved to some other time. And so, you know, once we get this playoff format, I think that those are the other places that the, that the talks will shift between the league and the players' association.
2: Final thought for you, CJ, and, and it's crazy because this, this is the closest that we've come to, you know, this is actually going to happen. And I know there are still things that need to be cleared and still technicalities that need to be figured out. By by no means is this set in stone. But go back to March 11th. I, I remember vividly that night and, and texting Pinder and texting you and, and just like yeah. we we're all trying to figure out what was going on that night and, you know, talking to you the next day and the, the – bi-weekly hits after that did it did it feel like we were ever going to get to this point because there were some times where it, it sure felt like we may never see hockey again it didn't for me you know I, don't,
5: I can't speak for you but you know it sounds crazy but this this is such a unique moment in our lives i mean outside of sports and our jobs and everything i mean those those first few weeks it was hard to know what was going to happen there, there was a lot of fear and and the unknown uh by no means am I suggesting we're on the other side of the pandemic. I mean, I know that this, especially here in Ontario, where I live, that the numbers are still at a spot where, you know, we were pretty much, you know, having to stay in our houses, but, you know, I think things have normalized a little bit and we've seen other sports return. And, you know, now I I didn't really feel like at that time for sure that we get here. And even in that moment, I didn't know for certain the next hockey game would be played at the earliest in July. I mean, there were still, at least some notion maybe this wouldn't uh, last as long as it did, at least in those early days. Mm-hmm. Maybe for those, at least for those naive sports writers like myself, maybe the smarter people in the room understood this was always going to be the end game. But, um, you know, it's it's been interesting and, and it's hard not to feel a little bit hopeful. I, it, you know, I don't know still if this is going to happen. I don't think anyone can say for certain, um, but it's pretty clear to me if, if anything's going to happen here, no one's going to say the NHL didn't do Absolutely everything at its power, everything that it is under its control, to try to make it happen. Because, you know, certainly this sport isn't being undone by infighting or um, any of the things I think that are, are dogging some of the other sports right now. Baseball, in particular, um, you know, the the NHL players, by and large, I think, are interested in, in finishing the season. The owners and and you know the men who run the league are, and everyone's just trying to to follow the rules, but but work within those rules to to make this happen. Good
2: stuff, CJ. Outstanding reporting, and uh, we will talk to you again on Tuesday. Thank you so much, my friend.
5: All right. Have a good weekend. Put on
2: the sunscreen. I hope you maybe swing some golf clubs or something. You as well, and uh, enjoy that uh, long-distance run again. Okay. We'll see you. There's CJ, uh, Chris Johnston, our NHL Insider. I wasn't going to bore him with the fact that we don't need sunscreen today. Um, no. But uh, we don't need sunscreen today. It's uh, Pinder and Steinberg along with you. Chris Johnston joins us Tuesdays and Thursdays. Steinberg and Klein along with you will react to that and the news of the NHL news cycle. The last 24 hours, a pretty significant one in the National Hockey League. Our reaction to that, a 2014 playoff. Your thoughts and more next. Pinder and Steinberg, well white. Sportsnet 960, the fan.
0: Calgary guys staying at home, Ryan Pinder and Pat Steinberg, talking sports, pop culture, life, and anything else. Your afternoon diversion is right here. Stream online at sportsnet.ca 960. Download the Sportsnet or Radio Player Canada apps. Pinder and Steinberg are on Sportsnet 960, the Fan.
2: For the time being, Pinder on the morning show, and Klein is with me today. And uh, for the foreseeable future on Instagram Live, he just waved at you as well. If you want to come by, uh, Klein's on Instagram at primetimeKlein. And if you want to watch the show on IG Live, uh, do so at Steinberg1984. Um, it's been pretty fun trying the, the television, radio on television experiment, but only on Instagram. It's You get to see <laughs> both of us. And yeah. uh you get to hear all the the phone calls and all the music and all this. like the the show is right there for you. It's worked out so well. Uh, so far anyway we just had yeah. Chris Johnston on our NHL Insider a lot about uh, all about the uh, article that Elliot and CJ collaborated on last night at sportsnet.ca They broke the story of this 24 team return to play idea the NHL has essentially if you're just joining us and you haven't read it the the reader's digest would be top four teams per conference get a bye and will play in their own little mini round robin to potentially help decide seating for the playoffs when they actually begin and then in each conference teams five through 12 would play off to determine the final four teams in the eight team playoff they would get away for the time being uh, from the divisional playoff format and would go to a conference bracket instead similar to the nba and uh, then they would compete in four best of seven series to uh, award a stanley cup the play-in round would be a best of five for our purposes in this city the way things are going if they were to do it on points percentage which it sounds like they're going to do the calgary flames and the winnipeg jets would play one another in a best of five play-in to determine if they're going to make the playoffs or not um i don't mind it at all i i think it sounds fun I think, yeah, you know what? You can tell me gimmicky or, or different or whatever, but maybe, to me, it sounds fun, it sounds entertaining, it sounds about as fair as you're going to get when fair doesn't really exist in a pandemic. Um, I love it. I, I, I think it would be extremely entertaining. I hope that it happens, and I hope that what has been proposed and what they are discussing and working on right now comes to be because i think it'd be really good i don't have a problem with montreal and chicago getting a chance because i understand that those teams bring in a vast amount of revenue to the nhl and revenue is important in in trying to salvage um salvage the season and not lose as much money as uh, originally you were going to lose i i don't mind that at all so i'm honestly klein okay with all of it from a format perspective like this is getting away from the testing and the infections and like just let, right. let's let's for a second pretend that stuff will all be taken care of from a strict hockey format perspective i like it i don't have a problem with it at all
3: yeah i, I understand some of the people being a little frustrated with montreal and chicago getting in but i mean you, you also just have to make the numbers of a tournament work right like <laughs> putting just 11 teams in one and 13 in the other it, it, yeah, gets it doesn't very work complicated. very well, right? Yeah, exactly. Like the, the reason that the the NHL and the NBA go with eight isn't because that the sports gods from up on high have decided that there shall only be 16 worthy teams making it into playoffs and in sports. It's because the numbers work for a tournament. Like that's that that's the reasoning. So you, you do have to kind of make it work sometimes. And it, it's not like they have just a clear path to a cup final. They, they have to face... Um, some pretty good teams. In Montreal's case, it'd be Pittsburgh. In Chicago's case, it would be the Edmonton Oilers. So, yeah, I, I have no problem with it. And the format, I like it a lot. I think it's a lot of fun. Um, I, I like the idea of that top four tournament as well. Figuring out the the different seating from a Flames perspective. It, it certainly makes it a bit of a difficult road to, to get to a, a Stanley Cup final when you have a Winnipeg Jets team that looks like it would just be absolutely no fun at all to play against uh, in a regular postseason. And then after that, the, the way the current format would be set up, they would take on the number one seed, whether that be St. Louis, who it would be right now, or however they decide how they would go about that. It, it would be a tough road for the Flames to, to maneuver. But from an overall hockey standpoint, I think it's great. I, I think those play-in rounds are going to be a lot of fun. Uh, I think the top four tournament's going to be a blast. And if, if this is something they stuck with going forward, I wouldn't hate it either. I don't think it's too gimmicky. Um, I mean, you're playing hockey in front of zero people. I, I think in terms of what this could have been, it's right in the middle of the Venn diagram of gimmicky
2: and also what these things should be. Yeah. Well... And, I mean, the whole concept of, well, there will be an asterisk on the, the Stanley Cup or or it's it's not I mean, what would you rather have? I mean, w- would you rather right. have an asterisk on the Stanley Cup or, or, first of all, I don't believe there will be an asterisk. I, be- I believe that we will look back on the 1920 season and say it was one of the strangest years that we've ever been a part of because a worldwide pandemic shut down professional sports for four months or whatever it ends up being when it's all said and done. It'll be weird and we'll look back on it and, and we'll have plenty of recollections of what the 1920 professional sports season was, but I'm not going to look back for a team that, you know, maybe only played 70 regular season games as opposed to 82, but still won 16 to 19 playoff games in front of no fans and want to stand like, I'm not going to sit here and say they don't deserve it or like, I, I, I don't. That's my opinion. I'm not saying if you have a different opinion that you're wrong, but my opinion is, no, I don't really see a huge asterisk on this Stanley Cup. I, I see it as uh, an opportunity for the league to still award the trophy, an opportunity for them to give hockey fans and sports fans something to sink their teeth into in the most unprecedented time in most of our lifetimes. I I, I don't I don't see a lot of negatives in it from just a, uh, an ideal standpoint. And, and obviously... There still needs to be things that are worked out, like testing. There still needs to be things that are worked out, like how how to keep players and families and and populations safe. And there's all those things are of the utmost importance. And I don't believe the NHL is going to go through with something like this unless these things are all completely taken care of. But from a a strict hockey standpoint, I don't have a problem with it. I don't have a and 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 the fact that you know there there might be a, a few teams that don't get in who thought they were going to get in uh win the best of five like like the the flames were in a tenuous i'll I'll take at it just just from a Calgary Flames standpoint the flames from a points percentage standpoint were in a tenuous playoff spot uh going in uh they were just barely in the playoffs uh when the pause happened if you were to take a look at it from a points percentage standpoint the flames were seventh in the western conference um one up on the winnipeg jets and just barely fending off the minnesota wild now I think the Flames would have made the playoffs, but there is no guarantee in that, and they didn't do enough to put themselves in the top four category of of being there. So um, I, I think I think them being part of a best of five play in and having to go up against another good team like the Winnipeg Jets seems pretty equitable to me. I mean, the Jets are yeah. the Jets have a five sixty three and the Flames have a five sixty four in terms of win percentage, and <laughs> and and for those two teams to or points percentage, rather, for those two teams to who were in tenuous playoff spots to have to fight their way through, and and that will determine whether or not they play in the sixteen-team actual tournament. The, I don't have a problem with it. I think the Flames are in tough, but I also think the Jets are in tough. Those are two pretty evenly matched teams, and I think that would be a really close four or five-game best-of-five playing. Like, yeah, I, I think I think everything about it is you're not going to be able to find a perfect setup in a pandemic but is this is this is pretty close to as good as you're going to get and you know what if, if Montreal upset somebody well don't have Montreal upset you like if if honestly if Pittsburgh loses to Montreal or whoever Montreal would play uh if if Montreal beats the number five seed well don't lose like, like it's it's right. as simple as that isn't
3: it yeah no totally and I mean that's Every tournament is going to be that. Uh, Unless you go the the soccer route of just having a regular season where everyone plays each other once, home and away, and then whoever has the best record after that is the champion. If you're going to do a tournament, there's going to be upsets. And sometimes it may not go with how the season went, with the flow of it, but that's sports. That's tournaments. That's why we get so excited about March Madness every year. That's why the Stanley Cup playoffs have the drama of it. Like, when we, we look back at 2004... Were the Flames the best team in the Western Conference all throughout 2003-2004? No. They won an unreal role for a couple of months, and that that's what would happen here. You're just giving more teams the opportunity. We're not going to look back on this a few months from now and go, oh, well— I guess Chicago was the best team all season long. Who knew that? That's just, that's not how this works. Right. So yeah, no, I've, I have absolutely no problem with any of this. It's, it's going to be tough, but it's supposed to be, we're carving your name onto a trophy at the end of this. It's not supposed to be something that is, is just an absolute cakewalk. So no, I, I I don't really have much of an issue with with any of that. And and really when you're looking at it, the, the reason I don't, put a whole lot of weight into whether this has a mark on it or anything like that every team is going through the same situation right like every it's not like there was just a pandemic in the states and it was different for every team that this is equal footing for everyone had to pause at the same time everyone has to regroup now in this same thing this is Quite honestly, about as level of playing field as you'll have going into the Cup final or going into the Cup playoffs or a play-in or whatever, because all these teams have had time to to heal up their bumps and bruises and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I think it's about as
2: fair as it's going to get. Well, Tampa Bay went out to Columbus in the first round last year. Yeah, and that was after no one, an eighty-two game season. Totally, and no one's saying, "Oh, wow, I guess Columbus was the better team all season long." So, like, no, they had a good couple weeks. That's that's how playoffs work. Yeah, I, it, Nashville was an eight seed. The Kings won a cup as an eight and a six seed. Like it's just, right. it, it's it's. I, I just I, I don't see a problem in the format. And as Mike writes in on the text line nine six zero nine six zero, let's be real here. NHL has a new TV deal to sign south of the border. Uh, they wanted Chicago win. the NHL could actually make out like bandits with the next deal. Ironically, and and it's true. I mean, this is a this is a situation where. Yeah, of, of course the league is going to be thinking of revenues and, and the fact that they have the ability to bring Chicago into the fold. Yeah, I mean, to... Because it is going to be a scenario where it, it makes sense from a tournament standpoint. The NHL will enjoy having, uh, the, having the Blackhawks as part of it and enjoy having a, uh, a TV market like Chicago part of it. Of course they will, but that doesn't mean that there's no integrity in the tournament that they decide to go forward with. It, it doesn't mean yeah. that at all. No, it's not like they they decided that they wanted
3: the California teams in, so they were going to completely rejig the system so that LA and Anaheim and San Jose make it, because those teams were miles away from the playoffs. So, yeah, it, it, it works out great that it is Chicago and Montreal making it into this. If it was Carolina and whoever the West equivalent of Carolina is, then... I, I still think they would do it. I, I think it's a bit coincidental that it's Chicago-Montreal, but
2: I don't think they're upset about it either. No. A couple of other texts, 960-960. This may be the toughest Stanley Cup in history to win. Well, yeah, like, think about it if you're Pittsburgh. Like, the Penguins would enter this... Like, let's say the Penguins ended up as the 5-seed in the East or or one of the wild card teams in the East. um, mm-hmm. They would still be looked at as a Stanley Cup favorite because of who we, who plays on that team, right? Well, now the Penguins have to win 19 games instead of 16 to win a Stanley Cup. Now, granted, right. three of those are, are quote-unquote regular season-like games that are play-in games that will feel like playoff games, right? So, I mean, yeah, yeah that's a good point. It, it probably – and and if you're a team that has to win 19 to win a Stanley Cup or even if you have one of the buys and you win 16 to win a Cup – they're not they're not turning this into a gimmicky um round robin type tournament where that's how they're giving out the Stanley Cup like they they're trying to keep the integrity of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's 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 kind of where where I'm at on the whole thing.
3: Yeah. No, I, I yeah, I'm in complete agreement with you. Uh, what else we got at 960-960? I do wonder uh, just sorry to sorry to interrupt. I do wonder with with them not technically counting these play-in games as playoff games. Um, are these stats going to count regular season-wise? This is the nerdy stuff that I think about. Uh, Like, how how will that affect conditional draft picks and things of that nature? Now now we're getting into the nerdy stuff that I like.
2: Yeah, that's a good point, and I would imagine that they have all these things on a chalkboard because that's what they use chalkboard. Uh, they have all these things in a chalkboard that are um, mm-hmm. they're they're definitely looking at, and um, they have a lot of things that they're going to have to figure out. Um, take ha- take ten games off every regular season and make a play in permanent. I don't know if I don't know if I like that so much, but I do like the idea of going forward. Why not have a best-of-three play-in, even if, it's a, even if it's kind of for the final two wild-card spots? Or the, right, the like only 7, 10, 8, spots. 9 kind of thing. Exactly, like number one wild-card seed plays number four, number two plays three, and that decides your wild-card. I'd have no problem with that if they were to do that going forward. It's more revenue for the league. It's more meaningful hockey for us. And it, it puts 10 teams in each conference in the playoff mix as opposed to eight. I've had zero problem with baseball expanding their wild card spot first to two teams in the wild card mix. And now they continue to expand it. I've had no problems with that at all. I think it, it makes for, uh, it makes for good baseball. And I love the new NFL playoff format that they'll go with this year. The more, the more meaningful hockey, baseball, football, basketball we can get. I don't have a problem with others do. I know it's not a universal opinion, but, uh, that's where I fall in on that. Um, couple more texts, 960960. Uh, this one, clearly not a fan of uh, the idea. Lowell, you guys sound like a guy at a pawn shop trying to sell me an RCA TV with Sony guts. What are they paying you to talk this smack? Um, yeah, let's just... Cause I the know. NHL has us both in, in their pocket. They're, we're getting mm-hmm. huge payouts from the NHL directly to yeah. talk about this the,
3: stuff. The NHL was looking at... Uh, radio throughout North America and they decided hey that dude who was on a morning show as a host and got moved to the afternoon as producer we need to get people to listen to him talk about our format he's the one that we need to sign up for this thing there's more of your self
2: deprecation <laughs> um, regarding revenue ads are definitely coming to Jersey soon yeah probably oh totally I
3: mean, yeah hundred it's another, yeah, it's another
2: revenue stream
3: yeah you know what don't care i know that's an unpopular opinion don't care i mean I'm i don't need to see
2: i don't need to see it like europe where they basically paint your face uh right. to, to go play i don't need to see that but if they were to put a subtle ad on jerseys like one like like uh, in the um, nba yeah exactly like well yeah. you have all kinds I don't even of notice them on the nba like who is who is the big one that Golden State was? Rakuten was that the one that was all over Golden State? I think. Yeah, there. Um, yeah, I think the Lakers have wish. Yeah, like, okay, doesn't yeah. ruin my doesn't doesn't affect my basketball watching experience one bit. Um. will the play-in winners not have a huge advantage over the teams that didn't play? Well, that's why the teams are going to play, because they're going to play in a round-robin tournament to decide the one through four seeds so that that perhaps gets a little mitigated, and those games are still going to be pretty important too um this reads point percentage only good if balance schedule and games numbers uh, and and number of games played well actually that's what points percentage is there for it's to right. give itself a little bit more of a a balanced look at, at the way things are when games played um is is not even like we're talking about right here we'll wait and see I, I don't know how this is uh how this is going to play out i don't um but i do think that there is a decent chance that we will be seeing nhl hockey this summer in this format uh fingers crossed i like the format i know others don't but uh, i for one am on board with it and looking forward to seeing how it all plays out uh the sports 960 virtual hot stove is coming at the end of the month in fact a week from today may 28th peter labardius derek will and myself will be hosting a uh, pretty cool uh, virtual hot stove for some winners. So essentially what's going to happen is we're going to get on a Zoom call. We're going to have Atlas Pizza delivered to your place. You're going to come on with us, and we're just going to talk some hockey. Well, uh, I believe uh, Kirsch is going to moderate it. Um, But uh, we will have some good stories, some behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, You can ask some questions. uh, You get the pizza, and we do it for 45 minutes or an hour. Looking forward to it. It's all brought to you by imagine plumbing and appliances and qmm along with our friends at atlas pizza uh we've got more ways for you to win your way in but if you would like to go and be a part of this go to sportsnet.ca slash 960 right now uh we'll have a way for you to win your way in on the radio i believe tomorrow as well the virtual hot stove is coming up one week from today may 28th we'll take a break and come back with more it's pinder and steinberg on sportsnet
0: 960 the fan Strange times for sure. Sportsnet 960 The Fan is here for you. No sports? No problem. Pinder and Steinberg continues right now on Sportsnet 960 The Fan
2: thursdays in the three o'clock hour we are putting the spotlight on collegiate athletics in our province in southern alberta last week we started off our honor roll with the state trojans and today we're staying in calgary and focusing in on some U sports action with the mru cougars um much like everybody playing in canada west or playing college sports uh in canada things came to an end before everybody wanted them to come to an end but still wanted to make sure that we put the spotlight on and some of the best collegiate athletes in Calgary and area. Uh, we're going to kick off our MRU Honor Roll today by saying hello to Carla from the MRU Cougars, uh, who joins us right now. Hello, Carla. How are you today?
6: I'm great, thank you. How are you?
2: I'm well, and, and I would imagine strange times in the Cougars Athletic Department right now.
6: Uh, no different than strange times for everybody in post-secondary in life, absolutely, and trying to take it day by day.
2: So tell me about the, I guess, kind of the, the feeling of incompletion that surrounds the, the season right now. I, I know that there are so many more important things out there than sports, but that doesn't change the fact that you you put an investment into eight teams over a season and then and a lot of times you don't get to finish that season. It, it has to have been a, a difficult thing for everybody in the athletic uh, department to wrap their heads around.
6: Yeah, you know, I was with our women's hockey program and we were actually at nationals in PEI. And as a former varsity athlete, I can only describe it as being gutted for them. Um, Devastated and I can't put myself in their shoes as to having that taken away. I think when you look back on it later in life, they will realize that it was right decisions. But at the time, it was just really gut-wrenching um for those we had two programs actually at, at a national championships and so um we were able to get through other seasons but for those two particular ones um gut-wrenching for them and i think in many ways only time will heal that that short uh, cutoff season that they felt and went through
2: in saying that you talked about the teams that you had at nationals and you take a look at the way that the the cougars performed in all eight sports women and men's this year it was a pretty uh pretty successful year for mount royal wasn't it
6: yeah and i'll, I'll take out the pretty for you it was a uh, our most successful season since we've become a member of Canada West in youth sports and and quite honestly it was a year of first for us um We started out with a record-breaking 74 academic all Canadians, and that's a student with a grade point average of 80% or greater. And so that's 44% of our student-athletes are in that realm. Three of our varsity programs earned Canada West medals, um, and these three were our first three. So it starts with our men's soccer who finished the regular season in first place. Um, They walk away with a bronze medal, a tough loss in a semifinal, and, but they won our very, very first medal. And then we did have one of our student athletes, uh, Donay Domic, from our men's soccer. He was our rookie of the year, so he was youth Sports rookie of the year, which we've never had. Our women's, we move on to our women's volleyball program, and they they set a varsity record for wins at 20, 21 and three, finishing in Canada West in second. They brought home our first ever where they won our first-ever medal on Kenyan court, and that was a bronze medal, and they qualified for their first national championship. And our women's hockey, um, literally our first conference championship competition. Um, They beat our rivals up the road in an awesome semifinal, thrilling semifinal overtime game. They went on to win the silver medal. Uh, We lost to U of A in a hard-fought battle, but that is the best finish for that program as well, and they qualified at Nationals, as I said, the first Thursday, they actually, and not actually, they beat the top-ranked Ontario team in another overtime um, victory. And so we can legitimately say they were top four in the country. And then, as you mentioned, unfortunately, due to COVID, both the hockey's and the volleyball championships were cancelled. And um, so we never did get to see their true drive to a national championship, which for many student athletes, this is the ultimate experience that they will get.
2: Yeah, no doubt about it, but, I mean, that that has to be a, a gratifying year for the group, knowing how things uh, look? It it's to, to transition from playing ACAC into U Sports. I mean, that's that's a significant jump, and yet you know it has not taken long for the Cougars to whether it be hockey, volleyball, basketball. Like, it has not taken long for this group to and, and the Cougars athletic program to really make their mark in Canada West. That's how how proud are you of that and and what the Cougars have been able to do in a very short time in Canada West.
6: I, I personally, um, being a former athlete, I'm extremely proud. In particular, um, our integrated support team has worked in the last two two and a half years to really drive our culture, and this is really led by Rob Godfrey, who is our manager of varsity athletics, um, drive a high performance culture, and we're really starting to see our student athletes buy in and really benefit from that belief and putting the time in in the off season. Um, you're starting to see it. Where most people see it is the wins and the losses. But what where we see behind the scenes is really with how they buy in and they want to do those extra workouts. They want to get to the gym or onto the ice or on the soccer pitch and put in the extra time. and then so that's that journey that they take. But where we as spectators see it is in the wins and losses. And I know our whole department um, is extremely proud of our varsity teams and when you get one or two or four teams doing really well it actually drives the other four teams so much like competition uh it drives the other four teams to also want to do well and so it's really infectious um it's a, a great positive environment to be around it's probably why i love being a student athlete as well
2: well, and that's where I wanted to, to wrap it up with you, Carla, before we, we talk to a couple of your outstanding athletes from this past season. But you've been a varsity athlete at MRU and, and now involved with the athletic departments. Just just tell us about being an athlete, being a cougar on campus, and, and just the, the, the experience of being um, a varsity athlete at Mount Royal. Well, so I'll let our
6: varsity athletes, because they're really, I don't know how those, the the twenty some think I can see it from a perspective of on the admin side and the work that goes in behind the scenes and all the people that have to do it. They're the performers. They're on the stage. Uh, they're they're taking advantage of what we can provide. But really, um, we don't have <laughs> a lot of the just of it on the athletic side is we don't have jobs without them. But many of us who are behind the scenes actually come from the athletics world. So we were once then. And there's a lot of pressure on students, student athletes um, to find that balance of school because they do have to walk away from us with a degree um, to find the right level of training, the demands, the demands of being a young adult. So, um, I think the best perspective comes from our student athletes. But from behind the scenes, I know we are also so proud, uh, from Cougars Athletics and Recreation, so proud of of where we've come from. And we actually feel, many of us, because we didn't get to celebrate it at Cougar Night, um, we actually feel like it probably hasn't come to an end yet. Like we're right. still, How do we say thank you? How do we say hats off, um, congratulations to everybody, everybody who's involved? Um, and so we're looking at ways to try and do that, to really have an end-year thank you, great job type of event.
2: Well, Carla, I really appreciate the time. Looking forward to chatting with a couple of the athletes right away here, but thank you so much for taking some time to talk some Cougars athletics with you. Congratulations on an incredible nineteen twenty season, despite the fact it didn't get to be completed the way that you're used to. Thank you so much for spending some time. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. So that that is... I will. I'm looking forward to it. And and that is Anna from Mount Royal University. Sorry, that is Carla from Mount Royal University uh, with the MRU Athletics Program. And now a couple of the MRU athletes looking forward to chatting with, starting on the women's hockey team. We're going to chat with Anna Persky now of the MRU women's hockey team, who uh, just happened to have herself a pretty good year. Uh, 11 goals, 18 points in 26 games, and uh, a trip to nationals in PEI before things were canceled. Anna, thanks so much for doing this this afternoon. Afternoon. How are you today?
7: Uh, I'm doing pretty good. How are you?
2: I'm well, and uh I, I'm curious as to how you have uh, dealt with what has been a really strange time. And knowing that you were right there, kind of at the pinnacle of everything before things started, uh, how have you dealt with your season coming to an end?
7: Um, you know what? I think obviously it is tough, and still talking to the girls today, um, we still have that kind of empty empty hole there um but i do think that that definitely does push us forward into the next season you know like now we're coming into the next season with some vengeance we have goals and and we know we can achieve them right um as of now uh it, it's definitely a a weird break but a good break to have um i know listening to what carla had just said where you don't really feel like you had ever finished the season you feel like it's still going on um but uh yeah right now i i'm at home uh just kind of getting through and uh getting very excited already and it's 4 months away, 5 months away the next season. So
2: Well, it was it was like <sighs> how do you look back on the season because on the one hand you don't get to finish but on the other hand it's the best season that the mru cougars hockey teams have ever seen uh since since joining the u sports ranks. You go all the way to nationals you have yourself a a really good regular season and a great playoff run so how, how do you look back on the season for your team
7: yeah i mean i think the most important is just with absolute pride I am, I'm so proud to be a part of that team. I, I was so proud of uh, the team and the girls and, and where we got to and, and where I know we can go in the future. And um, it, it was a huge year. I mean, throughout the whole season, we, we were all so close. Um, we definitely had our ups and downs, and, but that's, that's for sure what made us stronger. And uh, it kind of came together at the right time. Um, we kind of just stuck with the plan that uh, Scott and Jordan and uh, Erica had Kind of set out with us from the beginning, and um, we, we came out with success, which is great. Um, obviously, a trip to nationals, um, hoping it's not a once in a lifetime experience for me going into my last year, but um, definitely uh, was one of the best experiences I've ever had. And um, yeah, it got cut short, but I mean, you think about it, we, we came out of it champions in our own minds uh we won that game we knew that we were at least top four if not higher and uh that's definitely something huge to take away from the season what uh
2: what made this team so special uh what what made the 1920 uh version of your cougars team so special anna
7: i i really think just from the beginning we clicked um we definitely had this is the first year we've had um so many people on the team. We took a larger roster than usual, and and I honestly do think that did help us because it pushes you in in practice and it pushes you um, to want to be better and, and to push each other to to make that lineup and to continually try and bring your best out every day. Um, once again, I think that the most important thing is off the ice. Like by the end of the season, I feel like everyone just had the same goal, and once we realized that same goal, we were a very driven team no matter what. Um, there was definitely lot you could see that through lots of emotion, I think. Um, even when we had gone down in that first game against U of C, there there was emotion there. We knew that we had this, we, we couldn't give up now. And and I think that's something that every team needs, you know, is, is that care and that want to to be as best as you can. Um we had lots of fun uh off the ice. Uh every practice was was fun and it was it you enjoyed going to the rink i think which was huge so um yeah
2: we're with uh, anna persky of the mru cougars women's hockey team who were at nationals before the uh before the nationals were canceled due to the the current pandemic situation i'm, I'm curious about your path to Mount Royal, though you are a, uh, you're Sherwood Park, like you're you're an Edmonton product, and and uh, you played all your minor hockey and high level hockey prior to Mount Royal in the Edmonton area, and then make your way to the Cougars. How uh, why Mount Royal, and and uh, how come how come Calgary was the spot to take your next step in your hockey career?
7: Yeah, um, so I had actually previously in my in my final year in Midget played on uh, Team Alberta. And it just kind of so happened that Scott that year was the coach. So I definitely got to know him very well. Okay. got to know his coaching style and, and I, I really liked that. Um, same with Jordan uh, Colleton. She, since I was young, I've, I've known her throughout the team Alberta program going through uh, Al- uh, Alberta winter games, uh, U16, uh, ATB challenge, all those kind of things. She was always a, a coach that was there and someone that um, I would recognize. So, for, uh, that was kind of my first introduction was meeting Scott throughout that program. Um, and then just kind of throughout the whole process, it, it honestly just seemed like the best fit for me um, with the team that they, they had, with the coaching staff, with the girls that um, I knew coming in uh, between um, Zoe de Beauville and Tiana Coe and Nicolette Sepper and um Cassidy Trotter like we're all Alberta based girls and I've played against them I've played with them um, and yeah it just seemed like an easy decision with with the schooling and uh, uh, everything kind of involved it all worked out
2: Tell me about being a Cougar. You're you're now four years done. You've got a fifth year left. So you're going into your final year at, at Mount Royal and as a member of the Cougars. But I mean, from the Crowchild Classic to being on <laughs> campus, just just tell us about uh, being a member of the Cougars and and what it's meant to you.
7: Yeah, I oh, I don't even know where to start. I think first off, I, I'm getting old at this point, <laughs> going into my fifth year. But yeah, um, your early
2: twenties, you're ancient. Yeah. <laughs>
7: Yeah, um, I would just say, um, and it sounds cliche, but but it is a family. I mean, Carla had touched on just on the end. I got to catch what she said, and she said, "We wouldn't have jobs without the athletes, but I mean, we as athletes wouldn't be anywhere that we are without them and that support staff. They have, in my four years going on five, it it has changed completely. We we have access to so many programs. We we are just." We get so much. Like I'm so grateful because they do so much for us in order to support us in both the athletic side and um, the academic side. So I think that's huge. Um, being a Cougar, there's there's a it's a small student body compared to most um, schools that we play. So it's a huge sense of, of family. It's a huge sense of pride. Um, there's lots of support. I mean, that's directly seen throughout the Crowchild Classic, right? Like that's that's the what you want to be a part of the the biggest game of the of the year right that's that's the most exciting part in your regular season and and so many people get to see um at that time what cougars hockey is about and and come support us i mean um that's something that no other university really gets to do besides us and you so that's definitely really exciting but i think overall just the school the school is is a family and we do get a lot of support kind of everywhere we are
2: Anna, really appreciate the time. Congratulations on an outstanding season personally, but more importantly, an outstanding year uh, for you and the Cougars. Uh, thank you for spending some time and telling the Mount Royal story with us. Good luck next season, and, and I'm with you. Hopefully that uh, trip to Nationals is not a once-in-a-lifetime situation. Hopefully you're back there in about a year's time.
7: Thank you so much for allowing me to be a part of this.
2: no problem thanks for doing it that's anna persky of the mru cougars women's hockey team they were at nationals before things had to uh, come to an end uh which is which is really too bad but doesn't take away from how outstanding their season was on the ice and uh speaking of success well this time on the court how about the year the women's volleyball team had at uh, mount royal an outstanding year and we're joined by chantelle park of the volleyball team at mru chantelle how are you today i'm great how are you i'm doing well what um what has uh pandemic life been for you 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 don't have the the same feeling of kind of kinda incompletion as some other uh athletes do but what what has this been like for you
8: um well i kind of well i actually finished my degree at mount royal so i am not getting the graduation that i was expecting but um basically i am just kind of living at home kind of trying to stay away from all the sick people but otherwise yeah i'm not doing too much
2: <laughs> well i mean you, you talk about it i mean you you were able to finish your athletic season but I, I guess i never thought about that five years at at mount royal and and you don't get that graduation that you have been working for the entire time how is, um how has that been mentally to to wrap your head around
8: Um, Well, speaking of unfinished business, because we actually got our student canceled the night before National started, so that was super upsetting. But uh, yeah, technically, um, I get my certificate or my um, bachelor's degree in the mail, and then we get a chance to cross the stage possibly in November if everything pans out. So we do technically still get our convocation. It's just not in the same time that we were expecting it um and i'm also going back to school so i'm still a student
5: (laughs) yeah
2: i guess so so it's 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 a bizarre time and and that so so take me through how it went you were able to finish your canada west schedule but you had done an outstanding job you'd won the canada west medal had one of the the best seasons that any athletic team for mount royal has ever had and then so tell me about having the nationals canceled and and how much of a, a kick to the gut that was for you
8: well, yeah, we had our um, practice on court at UFC that day. So we had our uh, hour time slot, and then we were all getting ready to go to our banquet that night and we get the email that the banquet's been canceled. So we were pretty bummed about that, but everything was still to like a go. Everything was still like we're still ready to play tomorrow, like the next day. And then about an hour before, um we all met as a team to have dinner. Um, they were saying that we were going to possibly do it without spectators. So it kind of just went down um, these levels. So we were no banquet, then no spectators, and then everything got cancelled. So I think at about 10 o'clock that night, everything had gotten cancelled. So everything kind of shut down super abruptly. So for me, not going back next year and having another opportunity, it was definitely gut-wrenching. But I wouldn't have changed the way that my season went with my team and although it obviously didn't end the way that we wanted it to it was still the best experience to be part of
2: Chantel Park is with us from the MRU Cougars women's volleyball team an outstanding year for the team on the court and uh yet you don't get to go to nationals how how do you look back on the season as a whole. Like, I, I know that it has a, a real sense of, hey, I, I don't get to go back and, and defend this, but at the same time, you had a, an outstanding year. So how do, you, uh, how do you look back on it, Chantel?
8: Um, I look back on it with the most amount of pride. Um, every single one of the girls on that team and on our coaching staff and um, the athletic department, all the support staff, everyone put absolutely everything into this season. And I think it really showed like our dedication off the court in the summer last year, coming on and translating into training camp and then our preseason schedule. It was just, everyone had absolute buy-in to our process and what we were trying to do. And our goal immediately was we wanted to go to nationals and we never lost sight of that. We never let it get too far ahead of us. It was always in our grasp and it was the best experience I could have asked for. Um, so I kind of look at it like that, like everyone put in absolutely everything and I wouldn't have changed a second of it.
2: So you, uh, your, your career prior to Mount Royal was black, in Black Falls, Alberta, correct? <laughs> yes. So how did you make the jump from, here you are and excelling at volleyball in central Alberta? How did, uh, how did you make the jump to Mount Royal and become a five-year Cougar?
8: Um, I played club all my, through my youth as well. And it ended up being in my U18 year, uh, in grade 12 that I decided to play for, um, the old college club volleyball team. And the coach of that team knew, um, Sammy Fraser. She's one of our assistant coaches at Mount Royal. And he asked her to come and watch me play. She did. She kind of spoke to me a little bit after the game that she had come to watch And then I got an email a few days later uh, saying that they wanted me to come and go for a visit, basically. And, yeah, I never expected that I would be at anywhere like Mount Royal, mostly because I was not a high-level volleyball player at the time. I solely was playing soccer mostly and then just volleyball because it was the next thing in the gym. But uh, I went to my visit at Mount Royal and fell in love with the team and the atmosphere, the school, everything, and that was where I wanted to be.
2: What was it, uh, I mean, tell me about your five years at Mount Royal.
8: Um, It was definitely a growing experience. I am definitely not the same person I was when I went there five years ago, which I think is a good thing. Um, I went right out of high school, so the first year was definitely a lot of navigating the waters, trying to figure out kind of where I belonged and how kind of how um, to get through school, kind of to parent myself at that point because I would moved out of my home. And, yeah, it was it was a big growing year for me. But throughout the five years, like, you get such a support system from the coaches, your teammates, your, your friends that you um, build while you're there, uh, your profs. Um, and even if, yeah, if you have any issue, it's such a small campus – that and you have such a great support system through your team and through the resources we get from the uh, athletic department that if you need anything they're right there to help you along the way if you need help setting up your schedule or if you need like to um, set up a study schedule because maybe your time management isn't like right there and you need that extra time to study they'll Mm -hmm. help you set that up it's fantastic I felt supported my whole time.
2: That is very cool. Well, I, I'm so sorry that, I mean, it ends in in such a, a strange way for you. I mean, you, you you had so much success on the court, yet still don't get the opportunity to, to finish it off at Nationals. And, and I'm so sorry that graduation didn't uh, work the way you, you or, or go the way you wanted. But at the same time, congratulations on an outstanding five-year career at Mount Royal, and congratulations on an outstanding final season in volleyball. Thanks so much for doing this today chantel a real pleasure having you on
8: oh thank you for having me it was awesome
2: that is Chantel Park from the MRU volleyball team. We also spoke with Anna Perschke of the MRU hockey team, and Carla joined us from the uh, MRU Cougars Athletic Association. That is our second edition of the Honor Roll. Started with the State Trojans, and today the spotlight on the MRU Cougars playing in U Sports. We've got UFL still to come. Uh, Going to check in on Red Deer. We want to get the UFC involved and want to put the spotlight on collegiate athletes in Alberta and uh, around the Calgary area. Thank Thanks to uh, Geron and everybody at MRU for making that possible. Thank you to Carla, Anna, and Chantel as well. Forty years ago today, something extremely important happened, not in this city, but referring to this city. Eric Dehatchek was here when it all went down, and it might just be the most significant hockey day in Calgary history. We'll reminisce on that when we come back. It's Pinder and Steinberg underway on a Thursday. Sportsnet 960, The Fan
0: two guys in different spots staying at home but still talking on the radio it's a miracle pinder and steinberg is only on sportsnet 960 the fan welcome back to the
2: program final hour of the show this hour chris johnston from sportsnet the latest on the nhl's restart plan and a 2014 play-in but before we do that pretty significant day this date in flames history Oh, I'll, I'll let Logan explain it because today, perhaps the most significant day in Calgary hockey history.
0: Let's go back in time and celebrate the amazing history of the Calgary Flames. Today in Flames History, Start, starts now.
1: On May 21st, 1980, one of the biggest announcements in Calgary sports history As it was the date of the official announcement, the Atlanta Flames would be relocating to Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Atlanta entered the league in 1971. The team was fairly successful on the ice right off the bat, making the playoffs in six of their eight years in Atlanta. Off the ice, however, finances were constantly shaky, and by 1980, ownership had to sell off the team in order to avoid bankruptcy. When no viable offers appeared locally, it was a Calgary-based group of businessmen who emerged as the favorites. Included the names of Harley Hotchkiss, Ralph T. Scurfield, Norman Green, Doc and Byron Seaman, and former Calgary stampede legend Normie Kwong. The group would buy the team for $16 million U.S., the highest ever sale price at the time for an NHL team. While the team decided to keep the namesake of the Flames. The Flaming A was replaced by the iconic Flaming C, now seen daily
0: throughout the city of Calgary. Today in Flames history, celebrating 40 years of Flames hockey in Calgary on Sportsnet 960, The Fan.
2: And when I think of Calgary hockey historians and guys that I want to you know take a trip down memory lane with in this city especially when it comes to the media uh, i think of a few people i think of ken newen's calgary broadcasting royalty i think of peter marr who we talked to about two hours ago i think of george johnson and i think of our next guest from the athletic eric dehatchik joins us to uh, look back at 40 years ago today when the announcement was made the atlanta flames were becoming the calgary flames hello mr dehatchik how are you? You today
9: not bad, not bad. I wish it wasn 't raining like it is, but uh, uh, I know that all of your uh, your colleagues are golfers i 'm a tennis player. I was able to play this weekend, which was really good, but you know you know you might be able to get out uh, and play golf with uh, uh, wet weather gear but you can't do it on the tennis court so i'm gonna have to wait for the sun to come out so other than that i've got nothing else to do except work and looking forward to chatting with you and getting caught up <laughs> well
2: and and it's good to hear from you it's like it, it, it feels at like the beginning of the pandemic again bad weather and pandemic just like the uh, a double punch to the face but uh this won't this is only a couple days and we'll be back to nice weather and you can get back out on the court where uh where were you 40 years ago when the announcement was made and when the Atlanta Flames officially, uh, it was officially announced that the Atlanta Flames had become the Calgary Flames.
9: Okay, so I was working for a, a paper that, that folded two months later called the Calgary-Albertans. So um, so 1980 was kind of a, an interesting year in Calgary. If you remember, um, you know, the, the Canadian men's Olympic team was based here. And so I, don't, I remember I went to Lake Placid in February of that year, covered the Olympic tournament. The Canadian team didn't do all that well, but the Americans won the, the gold, Miracle on Ice, uh, came back, um, had, took a little bit of time off, but mostly was, you know, just doing some junior hockey, uh, in Calgary Canucks and Calgary Wranglers working for the Albertan and you know the, most of for, for you know for some time it wasn't like this announcement came out of the blue there had been lots of, of talk about uh, speculation about the, the team relocating to uh, uh, to Calgary so you know trying to report the story didn't break it uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Larry Wood from the Calgary Herald that broke the story but we got on it right away and uh, and I mean my life changed right there and then that did uh, the lives of, of a lot of, of us young guys coming through the ranks because I was 24 and um, you know finding a job covering the NHL uh, it it was you know there just weren't that many jobs because there weren't that many teams so suddenly here comes a team and uh, so it was great I mean we did we did a ton of uh, of, uh, writing about the actual event I took some time off in the summer. My newspaper folded while I was traveling in Europe, came back to discover that the Calgary Sun had bought the Albertan, and I was working for the Calgary Sun, and that lasted nine weeks. And then uh, I, I switched over to the Herald uh, just before the start of, of the very first season in, in Calgary. So, it, I mean, it was an exciting time. It, uh, you know, the oil industry was booming. It was a, uh, the town was alive. It was a young town. It was an energetic town. You know, I was a, a fairly recent transplant. I'd only been here about two years, and uh, and you could just you you could feel the 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 palpable energy um, that this announcement created.
2: So. Like at the time, uh, and I think it's uh, I think it's crazy. That, you know you worked for three different papers in the span of about six months and 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 ended up covering the team full time. But we talked to Peter Marr earlier and and he said that the the announcement and the the official relocation kind of put Calgary on the map as a major league city. Being in the city at the time when the announcement was made, was was that the the general feel among most?
9: Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, don't forget, I mean, Edmonton had had been in the NHL for exactly one year up, up to that point. I mean, they were, they were completing their first NHL season. So the WHA merger had happened the summer before. And so suddenly there were NHL teams, you know, like if you, if you go back, you know, two years, there was three NHL teams, right? It was Toronto, uh, Montreal, and, and Vancouver. And then the WHA merger happened and all of a sudden, wow, here comes Edmonton, here comes Winnipeg, here comes Quebec. So, you know, the, the you know, the three of the four teams that, uh, that came in from the WHA were based in Canada and the Canadian content in the NHL doubled. And I think that, you know, just because of the rivalry that Calgary has with Edmonton, the fact that, that Edmonton had an NHL uh, team, uh, you know, great new building, and, you know, Calgary didn't have either of those things, you know, there was you know there was an awful lot of, of uh, that sort of sense of feeling of superiority that you always get in that Edmonton-Calgary rivalry. So the fact of Calgary getting its own team, team, and paying what was, a, what, you know, 16 million million was was considered a record price. It was like an unbelievable amount of money to, to pay for an NHL team, and um, you know, especially to play in, in a building as small as the Corral, because, you know, the Olympic Saddle Dome wouldn't be built for another three years, so you know, they had the top ticket prices in the league. It was more expensive to watch a game in Calgary that first year than it was in New York at Madison Square Gardens, or Chicago at the wow. stadium, or Boston at the Old Garden. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the, the, you know, I, I think that, you know, and then you know, you notice this. I think I, what I would tell you, Pat, is you noticed it more once you started traveling with the team six months later. So your training camp comes, you know, the team you know uh, gets picked, and you start going on the road, and suddenly you're in New York, and it's there in the marquee at, at Madison Square Garden, the Calgary Flames versus the New York Rangers. You pick up the New York Times, and Calgary is in the standings. There, there, there's just something about about having a major professional sports team that creates a palpable visibility uh, in. in in, in the North American sports team like if if I say Jacksonville what do you think? You think Jaguars, right? If you mm-hmm. say Sacramento, you don't think Cap- capital of California, you think Sacramento Kings in the NBA so, you know, the, the, you know, especially for a city, you know, which was considered a relatively, you know, small market team, that was, you know, that was the term that was applied to it, so for a city of the size of Calgary at that time to get a major league sports franchise, it absolutely it made a difference, it created a visibility I mean, you know, Calgary had a visibility because of the stampede, you know, so so within, the, you know, the genre of, of rodeo, chuck wagon racing, um, you know, constantly featured, you know, every summer on ABC's Wide World of Sports. But this was a daily reminder that uh, the city of Calgary had a major league team. It wasn't just a, a 10-day event in the summer that, you know, that some people cared about and, and lots didn't.
2: So tell me about that, that summer and you know, you, you mentioned that you were off traveling in, in Europe for part of it, but like what what are what are the stories that you're reporting on? What are the, the big news stories that you're working on in the summer of nineteen eighty leading up to the the first ever game played at the corral?
9: Well, uh, a few things. Um, you know, one, uh, you know, so the Calgary Sun comes in and takes over the assets of the uh, of the, the editor comes from Toronto named Lester Payette. Um, first thing he says to me is, uh, did you ever play? And I said, know, not at a high level. And I said, why? And he said, well, we want you to try out for the team. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, you know, we, have, you know, we want you to try out for the team. We want you to, you know, get an invitation to training camp and go to training camp and report on what it's like to go to an NHL training camp. And I said, really? You know, like the, this is the first thing that you want? And he said, yes, it is. So, I contacted Cliff Fletcher and I explained that, you know, that this was, and this was an era when participatory journalism was a thing. You couldn't do it now. I mean, I didn't even have to sign a waiver. It was, it was remarkable, actually, when you think about how, you know, insurance rules have changed and, and protocols have changed. But, uh, um, the, you know, Cliff agreed to do it. I mean, he sent me a letter, you know, and, you know, it was an official invitation to camp, and there's a story in the paper. But what, but, you know, but I, I'd played in forever. So, but I I'd made arrangements with Doug Sawyer. Who was coaching the wranglers at the time the the w h l team to go to he had a conditioning camp going in uh in August, So I said, Doug, can I come out and skate with you guys? Because I don't want to go to an NHL training camp without having been on the ice for forever. And this was not, it wasn't as common in those days, Pat, for, for uh, you know, like now you have those captain skates and everybody's fit and whatever. So um, so that's what I did. I, I was out skating with, uh, you know, Murray Brumwell, and I'm trying to remember Warren Skorodansky. I mean, you know, the, whoever the, 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 you know, the, 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 the Wranglers were at the time, uh, trying to get in shape. In terms of writing, we were, you know, Les Pat, this editor, wanted us to start doing profile. Profiles of some of the players that were were, were making the, the rounds But I remember he asked me to do a piece on, on Tom Lysiak, uh, who wasn't coming. Right? You know, like you know, he had been a member of the the Flames, but uh, he had been uh, traded to Chicago already. And I said, why Tom Lysiak? And he said, he's from my hometown, so I want a profile of him in the paper. Said, okay, give me his number. I'll do a profile of Tom Lysiak to keep you happy. So, but but you know, like you could you could just sort of feel um, the excitement building. Uh, and uh, and you know, we I knew a couple. I knew Brad. And Arch from before, I knew Paul Reinhardt from before, and I, I, I knew Bill Clement a little bit. So I remember doing stories on, on guys going into camp, and then of course, you know, once training camp rolled around, we were just full on, you know, trying to write profiles, trying to write, you know, just the you know the normal stuff that, that you would write. But in this particular case, it was you know a whole bunch of new players being introduced to, to this particular fan base. So there was lots to do, and uh, you know, and it was it was a really exciting time. I have to tell you, busy but exciting
2: no doubt no doubt and i as as a born and raised calgarian i, I love hearing these stories it's it's outstanding we're in conversation with eric Dehatchek of the athletic who was covering sports in this city on may 21st of 1980 the day it was announced that the atlanta flames were moving to calgary to become the calgary flames joining us this afternoon mr klein
3: uh, it's an honor to chat with a former Calgary Flames prospect. Uh, do we do we have
9: a, do we have any video of this try? First one in history. <laughs> Me as a lack of It's hard to know. <laughs> um,
3: with the Flames moving from Atlanta to Calgary, were there any other cities involved, or was it always going to be Calgary?
9: Uh, I, I, to the best of my knowledge, yes. Uh, I mean, the, the the biggest thing that happened there was that, um, and this is what, what the this is why it, the. Reporting on the story was was complicated because the, the you know the the oil group that ultimately ended up with the team you know led by Harley Hotchkiss you know Doc and B J Seaman um, uh, they were they were negotiating with with Tom Cousins the owner of the Atlanta Flames for the team and uh, if you'll remember Nelson scalbania who had owned the Indianapolis Racers of the WHA had sold Wayne Gretzky to to Peter pockington his friend uh, with the Edmonton Oilers I mean he was he was an entrepreneur. I mean, he, he was just, you know, like a, a guy that like bought things and flipped things and, and that, that was his, his business modus operandi. And so he scooped the deal basically just before the, um, you know, the, 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 the group from Calgary could complete it. And so he's the one that, uh, he made a deal with, with Molson Breweries who had a, a, produc- a television production company called Molstar at the time and sold the rights. To the, the broadcast to them, used the money from that to to essentially see his purchase of the team, and then didn't really have the operating capital to to run it. So then, within a very short period of time, a matter of weeks, really, he flipped 49% interest of the team to the you know the consortium here in Calgary, and then within uh, I think it was July of of of, um, of 81, less than a year. Scalvini was out of the picture, and, and there was, you know, Harley and Ralph Schofield and, and, the, and the Siemens and Norm Green and, and, and Normie Kwong that were that were the owners of the team. But as I said, there was all this subterfuge. And so it wasn't that there were other cities bidding for it, but there were like two competing groups in, in, in Calgary. And I'm, I, don't, I, I, I don't believe it ever really drove the, the price up. I think that the difference was that, that Scalvini offered like a cash deal, and, uh, and, and he managed to get it. So I, I do know from, in hindsight, you know, talking to Harley after the fact that they were not very pleased about that because of of the way it all played out but you know they ended up with the team eventually and I think that it, it turned out to be a good investment for them uh you know, once they got into the new building, and um, you know, and, and the, I mean, you know what the the love affair of Calgarians for that team was. I mean, the the the, the corral was was crazy. You know, that every seat was sold out. You know, seven to eight hundred people a night stood to watch the the, the the games. And then when the when the Saddledome came along, I mean, it was sold out too. So it was, uh, you know, it turned out into a, a very good business deal for them in time. But at the time, but at the moment when Scal- you know grabbed it out from under them the, there were there were a few no, noses out of joint i guess is the best way of framing that
3: <laughs> um on the ice kent nielsen is someone just going back um they, they had me doing some this day in flames history stuff here during the break and seeing the numbers he was putting up Uh, What do you think his place is in in Flames history? It kind of feels like because he was part of the the team that was in Atlanta and then moving over here, he's not remembered quite as fondly as guys like Lanny and and others. Where do you view Kent Nielsen in, in Flames history?
9: Well, I, I, I think you could argue that he's the most talented player that they ever had. <laughs> I've told this story wow. a few times uh, that, um, that the, you know, so I, I go, I'm going to this training camp, and, and you know, I'm, I'm completely out of place. But but the thing that really drove the point home, because Al McNeil said to me, you know, like after a, a day or two, you know, stick around, you're not getting in the way, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I remember saying to him, I, you know, because I was behind Kent Nilsson in a drill, and, and I said, uh, this guy's playing a, a different game like I, I don't even understand what he's doing like I remember the, the drill was you're supposed to you know, you, t- you know player takes off once he crosses the center uh, ice line you go right well by the time Nilsson crosses and, and I go like I'm miles behind so the second time in the drill he takes off and I wait like a, one steamboat and I take off and I'm still properly positioned behind him because this guy is just he accelerated <laughs> out of a standing start so fast and to literally be on the ice behind him so I didn't know very much about Kent Nilsson at the time, I'm watching this guy and I'm thinking, I've never seen anything like this guy. And I remember Steve Simmons and I, uh, we drove down to Lethbridge or Medicine Hat for an exhibition game and I said, this guy's magic. And, uh, and so we came up with, between the two of us, the, the, the nickname, the Magic Man. I said because That's
2: of- how the Magic Man started?
9: Yeah, Steve Simmons and I in his Buick Riviera or whatever it was driving down there, and and you can look it up in the papers too because John Down, who was the other reporter there, thought yeah Magic is right, but he wanted it to be Mister Magic. So if you look at the first month's worth of copy, you know, whenever Steve and I wrote it, you know, Kent Nelson the Magic Man, and Downey was writing Mister Magic, and and we <laughs> held sway, so we got our way on that one. So, but uh, but but to your point, I mean, you know, so I, you know you have one hundred and thirty one points that year' It's still the highest total single season total that any player had he was just he was remarkable he, he he was when he was on there was there was really nobody better i mean wayne Gretzky you know had come into the league and, and was about to you know in the second year won his first scoring title you know won all these those heart trophy uh, um, win you know year after year after year but on the days when he was on he was he was so much fun to watch now you know the downside of Kent Nielsen was there were, there were nights when he wasn't very good and he, and he was a guy that could get down on himself a little bit too so if it wasn't going his way you know that, was, that became the double edged sword of the Magic Man uh, nickname because you know there were times when the Magic Man disappeared right that would be what people would write but um, but but on on his best days, he was you know well worth the price of admission. You know, and you think about you know charismatic players that have come through here you know subsequent to that, like Johnny Gaudreau and like, like Theo Fleury. But I don't think that anyone had the combination of athleticism and uh, and just you know, I mean just like natural pure ability like, like Kent Nilsson did. He could skate, he could shoot, he could think, you know, like he made that little backdoor pass before anybody else did it, you know, where you go behind the net and you just sort of drop the, the puck behind and the goalies had never seen it before and they'd be looking the you know the wrong way and you know and somebody would come in and, and put it in the empty net. I mean it was it was laughable how easy he made it look sometimes. He was he was remarkable to watch. He was he he, he he's he's one of the greatest players that ever played here.
3: Speaking of uh, different nicknames, was there ever any thought of changing it from the Flames? I know there's more historical significance to Flames in Atlanta than, than here in Calgary.
9: Yeah, uh, you know, uh, I think there was uh, there was talk about. Uh, I mean, you know, like a, a completely fresh logo, like essentially they just reworked the uh, the A from the Atlanta into a C. Is that there was some talk about that. I think there were logo contests. Um, I don't I don't believe that it, there was any serious consideration ever given to it because you know you could you know there was like a flames connotation with the oil industry and and and, and such and uh, um, you know I, I, you know no I, I don't know. I, my to the best of my understanding, there was no notion of calling them like a version of the Calgary Cowboys or a version of the Calgary Stampias or anything to invoke the you know the the western tradition of, of the city. I think they just felt that uh, that it worked in this city and it was uh, you know it, 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 it was it was a a, a good nickname I, I liked it i 'm glad they didn 't change that actually so you know, I, I, one of the very first jerseys I ever bought before it became like a thing to be able to buy jerseys. I, I grew up in Toronto, and there was a sporting goods store in Maple Leaf Gardens called Doug Laurie's Sporting Goods stores and that was really the only place in Toronto where you could buy authentic. NHL jerseys, and I, as a kid, as a fan growing up, bought two. I bought a Jacques Richard Atlanta Flames jersey because I thought the logo was so cool, and he wore number 15. And then I had a Borys Salmi uh, sweater. And uh, so when I, when I was when I was out skating with um, with Doug Sauter's crew that summer, um, you know, I, I looked at what I had in the bag, and there was an Atlanta Flames jersey in there. So I I just pulled it on and was using that when I was out there skating with them. So.
2: <laughs> that's awesome. With uh, Eric Tehachek of The Athletic, uh, 40 years ago today, the Atlanta Flames officially became the Calgary somethings, and, and they would uh, settle on the Calgary Flames, and uh, have been in this city for the uh, 40 years since that time. Just a, a final thought for you, Duha, and that's, that's on. I mean, think about it. Remember what Vegas did in year one, going all the way to the Stanley Cup Finals and having this incredible expansion year? Now, I know the situation's different. One was an expansion and one was a a relocation. But, you know, for a first year in a city that had never had NHL hockey before, to get all the way to the NHL's Final Four to knock off the the Blackhawks and the Flyers along the way. Like you could yes, they didn't go all the way and Minnesota eventually stopped them, but to to go all the way that they did and and to get to the NHL's final four. That was uh that was a pretty special first year for the Flames in Calgary.
9: Yeah, absolutely, and, and I, I just remember how the city embraced them. I mean, coming back, uh, we used to tra- travel in the playoffs. It was, it was commercial travel during the regular season, uh, uh, charter travel in, in the playoffs, and we would travel with the team. And I remember, you know, coming home after the the, the series victory in, uh, in in Philadelphia, and you know, middle of the night, and, and fans at the airport uh, greeting the team. It was uh, it was as if they won the, the, the Stanley Cup, and especially that uh, that Philadelphia series because the Flyers were not that far. Removed from yeah. the year that they had like 35 games in a row without a loss, right? I think it was the year before, 79-80, that they, they did that. They were only a couple of years removed from the Broad Street Bullies. They had a really good team, and uh, and I don't think that anybody gave uh, the Flames much of a of, of a chance. And I do remember that Al McNeil, I thought, devised a really game, good game plan there because the Flames are a big and tough team. Uh, but he he created you know line matchups that made it really difficult for. Uh, um for the flyers you know i think they had that uh, that linsman prop line that they called uh you know the Rat Patrol, and then he put together a line of Jim Paplinski and Randy Holt was on it, and, and Willie Platt, and They called themselves Rat Poison. their mandate was to to negate the effects of, of what was the de facto number one line in uh, in Philly at the time, and they were really good. And you know Randy Holt had uh, had the playoff of his life uh, in that series against Philadelphia, and he was deployed as a forward, not as a defenseman, which was, was his usual position. And uh, you know that was um, you know that was a real good team, and that was uh, an exciting series to cover. It was old-school hockey. Um, you, know, you know, before the Battle of Alberta ever became what it became, that particular series against Philadelphia was about as as physical as, 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 as a series. Well, I mean, I, I was an inexperienced reporter at the time, but I couldn't get over how physical it was. And, then, you know, the Minnesota series it was a little bit less than that. And I honestly think that they, they lost against Minnesota because, you know, they just weren't ready to play. There was such an emotional win over Philadelphia on the road in Game 7 that they came back and then they were the hosts of of Game 1 if I'm remembering this right uh, because they were the higher-seeded team at that time and they just had nothing that first game and Minnesota came in and stole it and it was a homer series the rest of the way and um, so um, you know conceivably if they had been able to find a way of winning that first game then they would have been the team that would have played uh, the Islanders in the final that year and that would have been a remarkable story because of course those two teams came into the NHL as expansion franchises in the same year so wasn't to be, but it didn't uh, take away from the fact that you know they played three rounds into a four-round NHL playoff, and, and the, the town was just alive um, because of their success in that in that particular postseason
2: that is very cool uh eric we uh definitely need to bring you on uh in in the very near future like next week because uh would love to get your just a historical perspective on what is happening right now in this 2014 playoff that is being proposed so i I definitely want to pick your brain on that next week but i thought today would be a great day to take a trip down memory lane on the calgary flames on the 40-year anniversary so thanks so much for doing that with us this afternoon that was fun
9: okay well thank you guys
2: That is Eric Dehatchek from The Athletic. 40 years ago today, the Atlanta Flames, uh, it was announced, are moving. They're done in Atlanta. Uh, The first of two failed NHL attempts in Atlanta, and they officially became the Calgary Flames on this day 40 years ago. Very cool. Eric Dehatchek was in the city, um, and uh, we also talked to Peter Marr earlier, which is up online, his initial thoughts, and then he became the voice of the Calgary Flames a couple of months later. Eric joining us on the Atlas Pete sports bar guest hotline working hard to reopen soon for sit-down drinks and dining atlas pizza still open for pickup or delivery by calling 403-248-3344 that's 248-3344 take a break when we come back our nhl insider chris johnston with the latest on a 24 team nhl restart plan what's it going to take and how close is it to being finalized cj tells us next on pinder and steinberg sportsnet 960 the Fan.
0: Calgary guys staying at home, Ryan Pinder and Pat Steinberg, talking sports, pop culture, life, and anything else. Your afternoon diversion is right here. Stream online at sportsnet.ca slash 960. Download the Sportsnet or Radio Player Canada apps. Pinder and Steinberg are on Sportsnet 960, the fan. Breaking the story
2: last night about where the NHL is right now. So can you give us an update on where the NHL roller coaster sits right now?
5: Well, I think the best way to put it is that progress has been made on on the format uh, the league would like to, to come back under if it's able to on the other side of this pandemic. And and so, you know, there, there's still uh, a technical aspect here. It's not finalized. It's not totally signed off on. You know, at this point, the league's waiting to, to hear uh, back from the Players Association, which has an executive board call in a couple hours' time uh, from when we're talking right now. But, you know, I think the fact that, the return to play committee feels as though it has something worth sharing with that board is, is notable. And, and, you know, remember that that return to play committee has both uh, members of, of the league executive and, and five current players and, and PA staff. And so both sides in, in these talks are represented on that committee. And so I think that that tells us at least that, that they're onto something here and that, you know, it looks as though, you know, there still could be some tweaking and some changes, but um, you know, this, this 2014 playoff format, we're starting to see what it's going to look like.
2: So what are the immediate next steps and, and what is immediately in front of the PA and the league in,
5: in terms of continuing to put this into motion? Well, I think we'll get some clarity tonight. I mean, in theory, the, the NHLPA's executive board could have a vote on it tonight and and essentially approve this and say that they're okay with, with what's on the table. They could suggest some tweaks. They could ask for a little bit more time. You know, this executive board's made up of, of a representative from each of the 31 teams. You know, maybe those those players want to go back and, and canvas a little bit more some of their own teammates before, you know, having a vote. You know, I think that there's a few possible outcomes here. But what's clear, I'd say, in the big picture is, you know, I think that there's a mutual uh, hope to to finalize this one way or another, to to to, you know, spell out exactly what the return-to-play format will look like to give players – that you know know they're going to be coming back a, a tangible idea of what they're coming back to and you know to think about the the playoff opponents they're going to have and and you know start you know give them that kind of carrot I guess and and then obviously there's the seven teams uh, that would officially know that they're they're not going to play anymore the, the the bottom seven you know that kind of releases those players from any concerns or having to ride the roller coaster uh, the rest of us have been on and so I think that you know here in in the next few days uh, you know I'm a little hesitant to put a a timeline on it because it's hard to know what the, the players are, are going to say tonight on this call. But, um, you know, there, there is a, a desire to try to finalize this thing one way or another.
2: So what are the details? Like give us the, the skinny on kind of what you and Elliot have, have, zeroed in on and what this format is going to look like for those who have not seen the report on sportsnet.ca or who have not seen either of you guys on twitter what can you tell us about the format and what it looks like right now
5: well we're going back to a conference-based playoff format as opposed to divisions and so you're going to have 12 teams for each side return uh the, the top four teams in each conference uh, essentially are given a buy into what we would consider the, the first round uh, those teams actually will play three games amongst each other. Uh, you know, the top four will each play the other uh, teams, and you know the results of those games will actually help determine the exact seeding one through four. And while that's happening, uh, the bottom eight on each side will will play play-in series. Those will be best of five, and they will determine seeds five, six, seven, and eight. Uh, you know, who who will play the top four seeds, and so. I think a couple things that that stand out to me in this is that it, it's bracketed, which means it's not reset every time. So the seeds aren't as important. I mean, there's a, a scenario, you know, tough to sort of articulate on radio, but uh, where the number one seed might not actually play the lowest seed. Uh, because if Montreal, say, in the East, or Chicago in the West is a 12th seed, if they were Chicago's to upset Edmonton in the first round, they would actually play the number four seed, even though they'd be the, the bottom team. Just the way it, the bracket works, it's almost like the similar to the NCAA basketball tournament. And and so, um, you know, I think the seating, maybe it's a little bit less important, but you know, what this does is it gives us a clear idea of who's playing whom uh, you got those best of five play play-ins for the bottom teams. And then, you know, that basically gives us the, the traditional 16 that we're used to. And then it would be for best of seven se- uh, series to determine the Stanley cup winner. So, you know, I, I know that, that there's some critics of this that they, they don't think especially teams like Montreal and Chicago belong but to me, it's still going to take 16 playoff wins at minimum to win the cup, and, yeah. and then obviously, if you're one of the teams that's coming from the bottom half of the bracket, which we've seen this happen in hockey a, a lot, I mean, those teams have to win a three out of five in addition to the the 16 wins, so they they essentially need to win five series and 19 games. So, you know, I I I think at the end of it, if they're able to play this, I you know, I can't imagine there might be some small quibbles about you know certain breaks teams got, but I, I can't imagine we're we're going to say. The best team in that tournament didn't win because that's that's a pretty big gauntlet to have to climb.
2: I'm with you 100 percent on that one. I I don't understand the uh, some of the the naysayers and the critics that are out there on it. But in in saying that, and and this is not some people leading... to
5: complain online. That that's what I've.
2: So this I know. Has been
5: my determination is that some people need anything to complain about the amount of times and and this is just a this is just a,
2: a quick soapbox second and i'd be yeah. curious to get your uh your response to it but the amount of times i've seen whether it's it's on in my mentions if i put out a tweet that that something is said or reading i reading yours or Elliot's or pierre's or bob's mentions like the yeah. amount of people who just like uh, cancel the season this is stupid why are we i, I don't understand it. i don't i don't understand the it, it, it makes no sense to me why there would be a sentiment saying just cancel the season and don't bring it back. That does not compute with me, and it 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 drives me bonkers that there is that that continue. And I'm not saying that's everybody. It's probably a very small segment of the population, but it it it, it baffles my mind that that there, there seems to be like this. No, this is stupid. Don't play it. I, I I don't. I can't wrap my head around that line of thinking. I really can't. There's
5: a surprising amount of it, and you're right. Twitter's a dangerous place because it's a bit of an echo chamber. There's only certain people in that that thing, and so sometimes it seems bigger than it is. But I'm surprised, you know, like say if you have a little piece of news on this or something, a tweet that does some business. I mean, there's a lot of people usually saying that. And I, I don't quite get it. I mean, first of all, you know, those of us making those tweets, we're just doing our job. We're not the one initiating the discussions or yeah. making these plans. We're just trying to tell people what's going on with them. And, and secondly, you know, I don't think anything's going to compel you to watch. You know, you no one's making you – care you know bundesliga played games on the weekend i'm sure a lot of people didn't watch those games but people that like that sport you know what they probably enjoyed it and, and my guess quite honestly even if these games end up being played in august and the summer is great and then we're all canadian we like to get outdoors i still think if this tournament is held that there'll be a tremendous amount of interest because it'll be different it'll be a long time coming and and i still think it's going to be kind of cool i'm, I'm really hoping now that we're seeing what it looks like that we actually get to see it play out in reality
2: and, and in saying that, Soapbox has now been put away. Um, why why has the NHL, like what what about this particular format has been uh, so uh, interesting and why does the NHL and the Return to Play Committee feel like this is the
5: best way to restart the season? Well, I think it does a few things. It, it includes absolutely every team that had any chance of winning the Stanley Cup when the season was stopped. I mean, there, there's not really... A fair complaint, at least not one I would be willing to listen to for many of the seven teams that don't get to participate, that they, they should be there. You know, in doing so, you have five of the six original six teams included. And, and you know, the Rangers, the Canadians and the Blackhawks, all three of those teams wouldn't be in if, if you went to a 20 team format. So you you've engaged some some big markets, some traditional markets, big cities. And, you know, selfishly, we've got six Canadian teams in it. We'd have a Jets uh, flames play in, which which I think is kind of cool. An all Canadian matchup is something that, that works. And and you know, I think ultimately what they've decided is that it preserves the integrity of the competition, uh, which you was know, one of the things right from the first day of the pause that, that Gary Bettman started hammering on and I don't think he's ever relented. I mean, just as we were talking about earlier, it's gonna be it's hard to say that any team that comes through this didn't deserve uh to win something, that you know, that this is this is a, a worthy competition. And I think that they've managed to come up with something that's about as good as you can do. And, you know, I, the, the fair question, I think, all along has been the hard one. You know, for example, you know, the, those 12 versus five seeds, you have Montreal and, and Pittsburgh in the East, and, and you have uh, Chicago and Edmonton in the West. You know, there, there's a big gap between those teams. You know, Montreal and Chicago were both going to have to win their last 10 or 12 games or whatever they had left, even have any hope to get in the playoffs. They were very, very, very unlikely to get there. And, and so, you know, now those two teams find themselves in a best of five where they could knock off a team that, that had a pretty good year. And some people don't think that's fair. And I think part of what the return to play committee did is they, they explored ways to see, is there a way that we could make it harder for those teams to win? Like, like should Edmonton and and Pittsburgh end up, say, have a one nothing lead to start that series? So they only have to win two, the other team has to win three. Or should they have to be swept in order to lose it? And And they kind of went through that exercise. And I think ultimately what was decided is that's that's way too gimmicky, even at a time when we're being a little bit gimmicky, mm-hmm. you know, a best of five, look at the play the regular season guarantees you nothing. I mean, we could go to every single year and point that out, but nothing hammers at home better than Tampa Bay's historically great regular season last year and the four game playoff loss. They were the first team eliminated uh, after having the, the best regular season, almost in NHL history. So, you know, that, that, I think we have to sort of just, put to rest in our minds what's happened already is the regular season. It's over. And now uh, things are in the hands of fate. It's a game played with rubber on ice. Uh, Teams get hot, momentum, injuries, all this stuff factors into who wins every year. And and I just think that that as they've gone through it, this is the best way to engage the most markets, um, you know, try to to put themselves in a position to earn back some revenue and get fans excited about something that's a little bit different than what we're used to, but still honors, you know, what the, the competition's supposed to be.
2: He is Chris Johnston. Our NHL insider joins us Tuesdays and Thursdays on the program. Mr. Klein.
3: Uh, the, that top four tournament in, in each conference, is that going to be like one versus four, two versus three, or how are they going to, to work that tournament?
5: So what I know for sure is the will play around round-robin type of game against all the other teams. So everyone will play everyone. And what I think is still being decided or debated is, you know, let's say if you're the fourth seed, Dallas is the fourth seed by point percentage in the West entering that. I, I don't think even if Dallas goes 3-0, they can get to the one seed. But I'm not sure exactly the mechanics that are going to be put in for how high you can jump or how those, those things are weighted. But what I do know is that those games will allow for some juggling of the seeds. So Dallas enters as the fourth of those four teams. Well, if they do go 3-0, they're going to end up somewhere above fourth. And so I think that that part of that is still what's being, at least on the player side, debated about how that should look or how it should work. Uh, I think they've had a few different models on it, um, but you know essentially what they're trying to do is not have those games be completely meaningless. I mean, I think that there would be fair concern if you're a team that had a great regular season, and those were only three exhibition games. Day, I mean, pure exhibition, and the team you're about to face, even if it is a lower seed, has just come through and won a best three out of five and played. Something much closer to to what playoff conditions are, um, you know. I think that that you you naturally feel a little bit nervous about that, that you're just not maybe at the same speed as as the team you're, you're facing. I mean, I think that actually was a factor in the Tampa Bay Columbus series last year, as Tampa clinched the playoff spot by about Christmas time, and they clinched the President's Trophy by the trade deadline. And down the the, the stretch of the season, what a few of their players said, and like re- looking back, is that they just relaxed too much. I mean, maybe that's. I can't speak for the flames you guys around them more. maybe that was a factor in their great season last year that didn't produce much when it came to the playoffs. And so, you know, I, I think that they're trying to find a way, or they've tried to find a way to keep those top teams, to give them an advantage, to reward the season they've had, uh, but also to, um, you know, give them a chance to to get competitively sharp because, you know, they're going to be jumping in against a team that's already won a series and, you know, there'll be momentum building and those, those types of things. So, I don't know exactly the machinations, but but the simple answer is that each of those top four will play three games against the other teams and and that the outcomes of those games will help determine what the the final seeding is.
3: Now, looking at the format, it does look like if we want to limit as much contact as possible that having the east in one location and the west in another would probably be the, the easiest way of going about things. Are we at a point now where two hub cities is maybe a bit more realistic than the four that had been discussed before?
5: Yeah, I would say four is not totally dead, but it's pretty close to dead. You know, it seems as though all the momentum here is going to two. And and look, it even makes sense when you're having a conference-based competition, I think, to have the whole conference in one spot. It, it also comes with, you know, an advantage that no one has to travel until after the second round. I mean, technically, you could actually play right through the conference final in the two cities, although I think the preference of the league is to, to play, you know, using two hubs, uh, play it through the second round and then get both the Eastern final and the Western final in the same city and have everyone there through the, the conclusion of the Stanley Cup final. Um, but, you know, it does seem as though the, the two-city format is is preferred. You know, I, I think I've, I've talked to you guys a bit. You know, I'm a little bit still skeptical about a Canadian city being one of those two, but, you know, that hasn't been ruled out. And, and the league's position on this at this point in time is, you know, they're not going to declare what the hub cities are until they absolutely have to. I, I think that, you know, we'll have this format 100%. You know, known and in public and announced. Uh, you might even get the dates announced. You know, that's not going to come initially, but at some point that it'll be the dates. And then I think you know, the hub cities will be something in the future because, you know, well, you know, I, I'm pretty comfortable telling you guys, I think Vegas is, is by far the front runner to be one of those cities. I mean, maybe something happens there from the health situation, from the governments, from, you know, something could, you know, crop up between now and, and two months from now that, that has to change the leaks plan. So you know, they're trying to leave the door open as much as they can, but I would say at this point in time, everything is pointing to a two-hub uh, kind of scenario.
3: Now, with the seven teams not making it, do they just go into the draft lottery, or would some of the teams that get eliminated in the play-in
5: tournaments also be included in that? That's still to be decided. You know, I'm not sure where that's going to land. I would think each of those seven teams that, that that won't be included will at least have a shot at the number one pick. Uh, you know, that That only makes sense, and that's kind of... You know the way it works, in, in a normal year, the the 15 teams that don't make the playoffs, you know, granted the, you know, the the best one has very very low odds, but there's there's a chance to to win the number one pick in 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 exchange for not playing playoff games. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen though to teams that are beat out in the play-in. I mean, what happens if say Pittsburgh, who actually had a pretty good year, does get upset by Montreal? I mean, would they be in the lottery all of a sudden? You know, a team that was was certainly in the top 10 overall in in the league. I I don't know if that'll that'll be what happens, I don't actually think the NHL has decided that even privately. I mean, it seems to me that they, they've kind of shelved the draft and the draft lottery talk uh, well. They've, they've ramped up the focus on getting the playoff uh, format locked in. I think once that format's locked in, uh, you know, the, the, the next logical thing is to figure out the draft lottery and, and when it's going to be held and, and when the draft's going to be held and how all those things work. Um, but, you know, I, I think earlier when we talked about the draft, they were trying to race it through. They've since decided, okay, let's do things in a natural order. And the natural order right now is first, you know, fully locking in the playoffs because I suppose there's a, there's a chance that this whole thing blows up and something different comes across. I mean, it, given how much things have changed already, I, I can't rule that it was a possibility. So, you know, th- there's no point in, in saying it's going to be seven teams that have a chance to win the number one overall pick. If maybe somehow a 20 team tournament comes up out of the blue, that isn't being discussed now. And it's going to be 11 teams that have a shot at that. So, I don't think the draft lottery will be locked in fully until this, this playoff format signed up on uh,
3: with any time there are changes with anything, especially right now, people are going to suggest that maybe this will be a long-term solution. Uh, do you think that the, this format that we're seeing right now could be something that is used when things
5: do get back to normal eventually? I don't know if they'll go 24 teams, you know, that's a lot, 24 out of 32, even if it is just a, a best of five play in, but I have to think, at some point in the future, we're going to see more than sixteen, and I mean the near future. Um, you know, be be the, the qualifiers for the league, and and I think this could offer a way forward. You know, what I've been sort of interested in, and and it's somewhat of a, sem- a semantics argument, but you know, this has gone from being called, you know, a twenty, an expanded twenty fourteen playoff to, you know, that play in round and 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 the games played with the top four seeds, that's sort of considered separate, and and I think the playoffs will officially start. When you're back down to 16, which is what we're nor- we're used to, which you know, to me tells me I think the NHL doesn't want anyone to read into this that that the, the playoff format itself is being completely rejigged. But you know, there's a lot of conversations that are going to happen well beyond this year. At the NHLPA just on ex- extending the CBA, uh, talking about the playoffs, and I and I think it makes too much sense, especially for the league going to 32 teams in a year's time when we add Seattle. Uh, not to have more playoff games, just because they, they generate revenue, which is going to continue to be something I think that there's a focus on, you know, even beyond you know what happens here in 2019, 20 uh, to to get back to to where they were in the past in terms of you know yearly revenue and and to exceed that. And and one obvious way to start to do that I think is to expand the field of playoff teams. So you know if I'm if I'm a betting man, I think we're going to see at least say a 20 team type of format where the bottom four in each conference. Uh, are playing some kind of wild card play in 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 the near future you know beyond this year uh, but you know at this point in time that's that's just my conjecture as opposed to anything official
3: chatting with our nhl insider chris johnston here on pinder
2: and steinberg he's steinberg just a couple more for you cj number one um and this is just a just a for technical clarification. I mean, obviously, the season will be starting after contracts traditionally expire. What what is in place to make sure players can still play after July first, knowing that traditionally that's when, especially if you're on an expiring deal, that comes
5: to an end. Well, as of now, absolutely nothing's in place, which is why you know I think it's important for them to lock in this playoff format because then they'll move on to all those issues and and. Okay. You know, some of those issues are probably even more important than a playoff format. I mean, I find a playoff format interesting where we're talking about, you know, which teams are going to play which teams and what it looks like. But the reality is, you know, if this is going to happen, you know, they have to iron out how the, the testing protocol is going to work. They have to iron out, you know, what's going to happen with work visas for players because, you know, players uh, have contracts that expire on, on June 30th officially. You know, so most players, that that's when their work visa expires. So that's got to be dealt with. And then ultimately how these, these contracts are going to function, insurance. You know, I think that there's, there's all kinds of sort of less sexy issues, uh, for, for lack of a better term, uh, that still need to be, to be hammered out. And right now the status of those, you know, the, the July 1st group is, is un, undefined. And, and, you know, let's face it, at this point for sure, the, the, the playoffs, if they happen, they're not starting before July 1st. I mean, we're looking at starting July 20th, probably a best case scenario right in in and around there. I don't mean that as a specific date, but I mean, we're talking the latter part of July at the earliest. And so if you're Alex Petrangelo or one of the, what, 150 players that doesn't have a contract for next season, um, you know, I think you're going to want to know how that works and how you're protected. And I mean, if he doesn't, you know, for example, Petrangelo's case, I mean, obviously he's going to probably sign maybe the biggest free agent deal whenever this off season comes and but he's potentially going to be playing games for the st louis blues on you know in late july and if he suffers a career-ending injury or something and, and obviously no one hopes that happens i think he's going to want some assurances that he's he's protected in that case and and so you know, i think that there's a lot that still has to kind of be finalized when it comes to that stuff and 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 you know the pressure points are coming i mean the first sort of critical off-season dates arrive june 1st typically that's when you have to sign your draft picks that are eligible to go back into the draft if you don't sign them? you know the buyout window typically opens July fifteenth or sorry June fifteenth the first buyout window. You know there's a whole bunch of other sort of dates that are typically you know considered part of the critical calendar in the off season that that are starting now, and that whole package is gonna to have to be moved to some other time and so you know once we get this playoff format, I think that those are the other places that the talks will shift between the league and the players association.
2: Final thought for you, CJ, and, and it's crazy because this, this is the closest that we've come to, you know, this is actually going to happen. And I know there are still things that need to be cleared and still technicalities that need to be figured out. By by no means is this set in stone. But go back to March 11th. I, I remember vividly that night and, and texting Pinder and texting you and, and just like yeah. we're all trying to figure out what was going on that night and, you know, talking to you the next day and the, the – bi-weekly hits after that did it did it feel like we were ever going to get to this point because there were some times where it, it sure felt like we may never see hockey
5: again it didn't for me you know i I can't speak for you but you know it sounds crazy but this this is such a unique moment in our lives i mean outside of sports and our jobs and everything i mean those those first few weeks it was hard to know what was going to happen there, there was a lot of fear and and the unknown uh by no means am I suggesting we're on the other side of the pandemic. I mean, I know that this, especially here in Ontario, where I live, that the numbers are still at a spot where, you know, we were pretty much, you know, having to stay in our houses, but, you know, I think things have normalized a little bit and we've seen other sports return. And, you know, now I, I didn't really feel like at that time for sure that we would get here. I, and even in that moment, I didn't know for certain the next hockey game would be played at the earliest in July. I mean, there were still, at least some notion maybe this wouldn't uh, last as long as it did, at least in those early days, mm-hmm. maybe for those, at least for those naive sports writers like myself, maybe the smarter people in the room understood this was always going to be the end game. But, um, you know, it's it's been interesting and, and it's hard not to feel a little bit hopeful. I, it, you know, I don't know still if this is going to happen. I don't think anyone can say for certain, um, but it's pretty clear to me if, if anything's going to happen here, no one's going to say the NHL didn't do absolutely everything in its power, everything that it is under its control to try to make it happen. Because, you know, certainly this sport isn't being undone by infighting or um, any of the things I think that are, are dogging some of the other sports right now, baseball in particular, um, you know, that the NHL players by and large, I think are interested in, in finishing the season, the owners and, and, you know, the men who run the league are, and everyone's just trying to, to follow the rules, but, but work within those rules to, to make this happen.
2: Good stuff, CJ. Outstanding reporting, and uh, we will talk to you again on Tuesday. Thank you so much, my friend. All right. Have a good weekend. Put on the sunscreen. I hope you maybe swing some golf clubs or something. You as well, and uh, enjoy that uh, long-distance run again. Okay. We'll see you. That's Chris Johnston with a ton of information on the NHL's plan to restart a 24-team uh, situation including the play-in round and then a 16-team playoff and uh, all of that, if you missed it, is up at sportsnet.ca slash 960 right now. Thanks to CJ as always our NHL insider from Sportsnet and sportsnet.ca. You can also go check Peter Marr, Eric DeHatchek and our MRU honor roll all up at sportsnet.ca slash 960 right now. Some classic blue jays action coming your way next followed by tim and sid for peter klein and riley pollock my name is pat steinberg that'll wrap us up today we will talk to you tomorrow on Pinder and steinberg here on sportsnet 960 the Fan.